Good morning. Welcome to CSIS. I'm John Alterman, Senior Vice President, the Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and the Director of the Middle East Program. And I'm really delighted to welcome you to what I think will be a fascinating program on U.S. policy and strategy in the Gulf uh, after the Soleimani strike. Uh, a few preliminaries first. Uh, in the unlikely event that we need to evacuate the building, I'll be the security officer, I'll tell you where to go. We have two means of egress, both that way and this way. Uh, I don't think that'll be a problem, but if there is, I will direct you. Second, I wanna thank uh, the Embassy of the UAE, which has supported today's activity. Um, they've done it in a way which I think is exemplary for the way that, that governments that wanna support a policy discussion, Washington should do so, which is they've, said, we're interested in the Gulf, set up a conference, it's all up to you. Um, and so they bear no responsibility for what any of us say. We bear no responsibility for the, 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 um, for the people who are speaking today, but I think it, it, it is an issue of significant broad interest and we are grateful to them for their support. Um, yeah, as we look at what is happening in the Gulf, it seems to me that we are, there is a, a broader national debate on whether the U.S. should be digging in or pulling out. Iran is perceived to be a threat, but there are differences even within the Trump administration as to how the U.S. should deal with that threat. Uh, the U.S. has increasingly been confronting asymmetrical threats in the Gulf and often responding with conventional tools. Uh, that ends up being both expensive and it also has limited effectiveness. The Soleimani strike on January 3rd has given us a, a sort of punctuation mark to look at what U.S. strategy is in the Gulf, what U.S. policy is in the Gulf, uh, is this a sign of increased commitment? Is it a sign of the U.S. trying to handle this from afar? Uh, is this the beginning of the end of the U.S. presence in Iraq? Amidst it all, of course, is the question of great power conflict and whether a more energy self-sufficient the United States should care about great power competition in the Gulf. China still imports most of its energy from the Gulf, but so do U.S. allies in Asia. So how should we think about that? And, and General Votel will be speaking to us at 11.15 on that topic. Uh, how should we think about U.S. strategy in the Gulf going forward? I'm really delighted to help kick this off are two people I have tremendous affection, but more importantly, respect for. John McLaughlin, uh, to your left is the Distinguished Practitioner in Residence at Johns Hopkins SIFE. Uh, previously, he served as the Acting Director of Central Intelligence, uh, as the Deputy Director of Central Intelligence at the CIA, Dire Deputy Director, um, so Director of Analysis, right? Yes. Um, Vice Chairman for Estimates, Acting Chairman of the National Intelligence Council. He helped found the Sherman Kent School. Um, he had a career at the CIA that lasted three decades, focused mostly on European, Russian, Eurasian issues. And 
what I value is when I'm really trying to figure out how should we categorize things, what's the useful way to think about it, there's nobody I've come to rely on more in Washington than John McLaughlin. To your right is Christine Wormuth, who's the director of the Rand International Security and Defense Policy Center. Prior to joining Rand, she was the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the U.S. Department of Defense. She served as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Force Development and was Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Defense at the National Security Council. Before entering the Obama administration, she was my colleague here at CSIS. But and not in this beautiful building, sadly. And, 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 Christine, and, and Christine has the advantage of both being really smart and awesome. So, so there, there are two terrific people to help us think conceptually, what are we trying to do? What should we be trying to do? And then we'll have a discussion with some really uh, experienced diplomats and experts in the next panel about sort of what the, the policy implications of this are. So, so John, why don't you start? Okay. Helping us frame. Well, as usual, John has set the bar very high for us, uh, asking a series of questions, and we will get to them. Uh, but in looking at any region, any event, uh, any particular time frame, I always think the most important thing to do is to establish a sense of context. What is the larger picture in which this is unfolding? Uh, and we're going to be looking, as John said, also at the aftermath of the killing of uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani. Uh, but in thinking about this, the first question I ask myself is, what's different in the Gulf today compared to, say, five years ago? And I'm going to say there are at least three things, maybe more, but I'm going to pick out the three that uh, seem most important to me. First, I think U.S. influence is markedly diminished compared to where we were five years ago. Many things got to us to this point, but uh, among them was a kind of erratic policy towards Syria, spanning two administrations, but particularly so in the last couple of years. Also, what I would call a kind of wobbly policy toward the Gulf, which we'll talk about. And finally, uh, an unbalanced approach toward Israeli-Palestinian issues, or sometimes simply neglect. You package all those things together and add some other things into it. I think our influence is markedly less than it was five years ago. And second, U.S. strategy toward Iran in particular, uh, which is at the heart of this debate, I think has lacked coherence since uh, Trump came to office. Yes, we know that he and his key aides uh, deplore Iranian behavior. That's clear. No, no ambiguity about that. But it's never been clear how they intend to deal with it and what their ultimate goal is and how they intend to get there. And third, compared to five years ago, uh, today we have to pay attention to, perhaps be concerned with great power comp competition in the Gulf at a, a measure that is uh, greater than five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. So those three things, big strategic contextual issues that frame the problem. So uh, let's look now at how we got here um, and then look second at what's our competition. And third, let's think a little bit about where could this go over the next 10 to 20 years. First, how did we get here? 
Well, uh, just about every Middle East problem you encounter always has a chicken and egg phase, <laughs> meaning how do we get in this mess? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, well, in the case of the current problems in the Gulf, I'm afraid that the U.S., this is my view, is both the chicken and the egg. What do I mean by that? Well, to be sure, we didn't create the historic animosity between Persians and Arabs. Uh, that's clear. We didn't, that's not our responsibility or our fault. Uh, but by pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement, we added fuel to a fire that was always uh, on simmer or approaching boil. And we set off a chain reaction uh, that we haven't been able to really control, shape, or direct. Now, we've been through this Iran nuclear agreement dozens of times. Most of you have talked about it uh, as endlessly as I have. Uh, so I don't want to flog uh, the horse again, but let me just make a basic point. It was not at all a perfect agreement, but it did two important things. It bought some precious temporal and uh, substantive space in which to work on other aspects of Iran's behavior with some assurance that the nuclear issue would be at least under control for a fixed, predictable period of time. And second, it was a rare instance of something on which a coalition of U.S. allies and adversaries could agree, everyone from our European partners to China and Russia. And it was a platform from which uh, the U.S. could plausibly bring multilateral leverage to bear on other Gulf issues. That's all gone now. In fact, I would argue that our unilateral action started a sequence of events, uh, the reimposition of American sanctions, Iran's gradual return to nuclear activity uh, over the past year, its response to the U.S. maximum pressure campaign, and actions that led ultimately to the targeting of General Soleimani. And now that Iran has lifted, lifted, lifted the restrictions it had agreed to under the nuclear agreement, we could, in a matter of months, certainly within a year, uh, face the conditions in Iran that last decade led the U.S. and Israel to actually consider military action uh, before we reached the agreement that I just referred to. But think about it now. Here's where, we, here's where I was leading us. Uh, Trump doesn't want a Mideast war. That's pretty clear. And if it's regime change he wants in Iran, there's no clear path to that either. So uh, I see U.S. strategy on this issue uh, stuck in a cul-de-sac, which I think is evident to everyone in the Gulf. And that in turn affects how they think about us. Uh, this came through for me uh, pretty vividly in comments by the Omani foreign minister, Yusuf bin Abdullah, uh, at the Munich Security Conference, where I was a week ago. Uh, and you know what that is. It's this gathering of people from all over the world the last 50 years to debate every issue imaginable. Uh, there was a session on Gulf security, and I attended that. At the end of a discussion among himself and foreign ministers from Kuwait, Qatar, Turkey, and the UAE uh, on efforts to bridge the Gulf between the Gulf, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, the Omani said bluntly that any progress will have to await the U.S. presidential election in November. 
And this doesn't mean the Omanis and others are not quietly building bridges that they're not telling us about between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but it seems to say there's no crossing them for another nine months. And by the way, the optics of that session uh, that I referred to in Munich, uh, sometimes optics tell you everything. Both the Iranian foreign minister, Zarif, and the Saudi foreign minister, uh, Faisal al-Saud, were both scheduled to speak, but they would not appear together. And they insisted that their appearances separately be, be, be uh, bridged, be, be separated by this panel of other foreign ministers, um, which also included U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. So with robed delegations marching in and out, it all seemed kind of absurd. Proving the old adage that the route between two points in the Middle East is seldom a straight line. Okay, second, what's our competition? Uh, I'm gonna try, and, I think our time is slipping, so I'm gonna try and zip through this pretty quickly. In the Gulf, our competition uh, comes from many countries, but uh, Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese, but primarily we need to think about China. The best way to describe China's expansion and strategy is that it's driven by three things. Uh, its need for energy, its growing belt and road initiative, this plan they have to connect China with basically the Middle East and Europe, literally from Xinjiang province right up to the uh, English Channel and certainly deeply into the Gulf uh, with infrastructure and so forth. And finally, a determination, so energy, Belt and Road, and the final thing, a determination not to get caught up in any of these Gulf disputes. At this point, they are primarily a commercial, economic, financial actor. But over the last dozen years, China's investment in all of the Gulf countries has grown to about $83 billion. I think it started, if you went back five years, at around 20, 25 billion. The bulk of that, 63 billion, is in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and focused, as you would imagine, on primarily energy-related issues. Every Gulf country has signed a partnership now with some, of some sort with China. And China has not neglected Iran. Iran is part of this, even though it's not in the uh, GCC. 11% uh, of China's oil imports come from Iran over the la in a recent five-year period. And um, I've mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. I won't go into that in more detail, uh, but it, that includes Iran as well as the Gulf countries. Uh, Russia is not operating on this scale, but its dependence on the global oil market means that it, it burrows pretty deeply into the diplomacy of the region uh, and the Middle East generally. Again, just to summarize Russia quickly, uh, well, one anecdote that's revealing, I went to a meeting of Gulf oil officials at Columbia University about a year ago, and in talking to them, they mentioned that Russia, now not a member of OPEC, does sit in on OPEC meetings as an observer and has tended to start chairing the meetings. Uh, I just came back from Russia in January, and I can tell you, Russians know how to run a meeting. Uh, maybe better than some of the Gulfies do. So that's just an interesting window on there. That's how they think about the Middle East. The record will reflect that former U.S. ambassadors <laughs> to the Gulf laughed at that. Okay, it did. Okay. Um, not the first time I've made someone laugh from the Middle East. Uh, Russia's focus has been mostly on Saudi and the UAE. 
uh, where it signed agreements uh, in the range of uh, one to two billion dollars in energy, advanced technology, and, and health sectors. And it's always trolling for arms markets. The Saudi, Saudis are apparently interested in the S-400 <laughs> system. Now I'm going to wrap up now by just, uh, you wanted us to talk about Soleimani. Uh, you posed the question of whether uh, we, this panel, would have made the same decision about Soleimani. Uh, maybe. Uh, if there was unassailable evidence of an imminent attack on Americans, that case, though, has not been made yet publicly, in my judgment. We haven't, not persuasively. And even in that case, it would have been important to consider whether the same result could have been obtained by attacking his operatives or hardening uh, vulnerable targets. So I would have started off skeptical, but I'm not sure where I would have come out. And let me just say a word about imminence. In, in, in talking about the, an imminent attack, we tend to think that means you know time, target, and place. Sometimes an attack can be judged rightly to be imminent, even though you don't know those things. In a, in a sense, that's what 9-11 was. Uh, if you went back to that period, the CIA was saying, we are going to have an imminent attack, but we did not know time, target, or place. Had we been able to find bin Laden at that point, it might have made a difference. So this is a hard call. But fundamentally, I would have started off skeptical about this. Uh, now, I've talked to my Israeli friends, some of them, uh, in the corridors of Munich, and they all think that this was an important thing to do and that it has had a deterrent effect on the Iranians. And to be, to be fair, the IRGC, Republican uh, Guard, seem to be off balance and losing some public support. So we just have to watch this one. Um, final comment, and I'm, I'm going to stop because I've gone on too long, but just John asked, where are we going to be in 20 years? Just skip to this point. If you believe our former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, in 20 years, I guess he would say 30 years, but in that time range, in all likelihood, China's economy will be twice the size of ours, <clears throat> unless there is some major discontinuity in China that we're not anticipating or that we can be surprised, but project forward in a linear way, that's what you get. So I think in 20 years, expect Beijing to have gone beyond the pattern of naval port visit visits and economic investments to weigh much more heavily in Middle Eastern calculations. Um, one way for the U.S. to prepare for this is to use what I think is our superior soft power to help the region with educational and social policies to prepare for that day. Uh, we will definitely not be able to spend our way to the front of the pack. Um, let's see what the next panel says, but I think diplomacy, soft power, and alliances is our force multiplying formula for decades ahead in this part of the world. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Okay, <clears throat> good morning everybody. I apologize in advance. I have a cold, so um, if I'm a little bit raspy, that's the reason why. Um, I, I largely agree with John's assessment of the region and, and sort of how we got here, where we are. Uh, so I'll, I'll just try to add a, a few observations on top of that. Um, <clears throat> I've spent most of my time in the Defense Department, and, and I'm firmly in the camp of 
um, those who believe that we really need to be at the grand strategy level focusing on the competition with China. And I think to be able to do that effectively, we have to make adjustments in terms of the level of emphasis that we're placing on the Middle East as a region. Uh, and our, I believe our, our interests in the region are changing. Um, you know, among other things, as John mentioned, we don't have the same kind of energy dependence that we did 20, 30 years ago. We certainly still have interests there, but um, for 20 years, the region has really been our focal point, and I think we need to really take some clear steps to change that if we're going to be able to compete successfully with China. And I think that competition with China will have a military dimension, but I think it's the diplomatic, economic, soft power dimensions that are much, much more important. So I don't want to suggest that, that this is as simple as, um, you know, the competition is all military. We need to de-invest militarily in the Middle East so that we can invest militarily in Asia. I'm not suggesting that. Uh, but certainly there's going to be a military dimension of the competition and we have been so heavily invested in the Middle East for so many years that I think if we're going to be successful in the next 20 years at the grand strategy level, we have to make some changes. The, the thing I really worry about right now is because of the strategic cul-de-sac we're in, it's very hard to make those shifts. Um, we, you know, to, to, be, to be able to really kind of rebalance the portfolio, if you will, across the globe, we, we have to be able to you know, find some places where we can have some economies, if you will, in the Middle East. And I don't think we can do that safely in terms of our own national security if we don't um, figure out a more coherent strategic approach to the region. And, and it feels to me like the maximum pressure strategy has become a strategy where you really have a, a misalignment between the ends, which are very maximalist under the current administration, and the uh, ways and means, uh, which, which don't seem to me to be um, in alignment with, with what this administration is trying to do. So my sense is we as a country need to figure out how can we de-escalate tensions broadly in the region. And it, it feels to me, and you know, our next panel with the diplomats uh, will be much more, uh, will be much better positioned to sort of have good ideas about this. But it feels to me that we have to find a way to articulate to Iran what do we think a reasonable deal would be. The administration has laid out a set. I mean, one, you have you know different voices in the administration saying slightly different things about what the policy is, but certainly Secretary Pompeo has laid out a set of conditions that, that to my ears would basically require Iran to fundamentally change as a regime. Uh, and, and I don't see that happening. So the conditions that we've laid out to me don't seem to be realistic. I think we have to find a way of saying, you know, what do we really want as a country? What do we think we need? Can we build a coalition once again, as the previous administration did, with other friends in the region, with countries in Europe, and, and can we you know, work out a deal? Uh, so whether that is trying to re-enter the deal and broaden it or craft the outlines of a brand new deal, 
Um, I, I think we have to really make some, to be successful, we have to really revisit the fundamentals of our current Iran policy, which I don't see happening. And ideally, revisit that in a, in a, um, in a structured, deliberate set of discussions where we would review the policy and think about second, third order effects. Uh, I, don't, I don't see that kind of deliberate discussion necessarily taking place right now. Um, but So I think a, a core piece would be revisiting the, the Iran policy and figuring out what can we realistically do to try to bring greater security and, and get Iran back into a position where they are not um, you know, restarting their nuclear program, essentially. I also think we need to look at other ways to try to de-escalate tensions in the region. Um, you know, it's, I, I think it was an important step that the UAE has basically uh, re-looked its, its approach in Yemen. I think we, we would be wise to be continuing to really encourage the Saudis to bring that conflict to an end. Um, I think we really need to be working um, carefully with the government of Iraq. There is a lot of diplomacy that needs to be done there. I think um, you know, we, it is in the United States' interest to have Iraq be stable and secure. Uh, I, I worry quite a bit about the Soleimani strike implications for um, where we are with the government of Iraq. <clears throat> Uh, I am hopeful that there are uh, conversations going on right now with the government of Iraq to try to keep the U.S. presence and the coalition presence in Iraq so that we can continue to work with the Iraqi security forces. But I think the Soleimani strike made that you know, complicated set of discussions even more complicated. And um, continuing to put the government in Iraq, of Iraq in a, in a position where they have to choose between Iran and the United States and how to manage that, I think, puts them in a very difficult position. So I think we need to find ways to rebuild our relationship with the government of Iraq, do some confidence building measures there, try to, again, de-escalate the conflicts, uh, whether it is Yemen, whether it's, whether it's the dispute with Qatar. Those are all, I think, steps that would help the United States be in a better position to, to start um, reallocating its military presence in the region. And I think um, Secretary Esper, as I understand it, has called for all of the regional combatant commands to do a zero-based review of our military presence in the major theaters. <clears throat> Excuse me, with, with one of the goals, at least presumably, being trying to identify places where we may be able to make some changes to enable the military to put more emphasis on the Indo-Pacific theater. This is a good opportunity to be able to look at what kinds of adjustments could we prudently and um, wisely make in our, in our posture in Central Command. And I think there are some changes that we could make there. Uh, people here, Melissa Dalton here at CSIS and Mara Carlin uh, over at SICE have, I think, you know, done some good thinking about how we might be able to change our posture. Uh, we could certainly, and, and I remember when I was in the department as early as 2014 during the Quadrennial Defense Review, we were looking at, you know, do, could we thin out our headquarters structure in CENTCOM? Do we really need to be, um, you know, what kinds of capabilities do we need in that region 10 years out, 20 years out? It feels to me that we need 
missile defenses, we need uh, naval maritime capabilities, ISR, special operations. Um, and if, if you believe those are the kinds of capabilities we're going to need to be able to deal with the security challenges in the region, looking at what we currently have and where we have relationships with countries that are strong enough that we might be able to transition to more of a warm basing approach, that feels to me like a very um, smart set of steps to be taking. And I think the zero-based review process that's going on right now is an opportunity for DOD to at least do that thinking. The concern that I have is there's so much instability in the region because of the strategic incoherence um, that you may not you know, have a time where even if you can identify in a, in a um, blue sky kind of way how we might be able to make some reallocations, our, our um, strategic incoherence may not allow us to move forward on making those kinds of changes at this time. So I think our first, the first step we need to do is to really look carefully at the grand strategy level of our approach to the Middle East, ideally make some adjustments, uh, but again, that may not happen, you know, certainly until I think we're on the other side of this election but then perhaps DOD would be able to come to, if there is a change administrations, which is I think very much a, a question now, DOD might be able to at least bring some ideas to the table about what an adjusted posture might look like. Um, so I think I'll just stop Thank you. there. Um, <clears throat> th there's a lot of richness there. Before we start talking about the 20 year perspective, which I do want to get to, you, you both identified Iran as a place where the U.S. has pretty ambitious goals and pretty limited tools that it's been willing to deploy. And to me, the, the sort of the, the difficult moment was the aftermath of the strike on the Saudi oil facilities in Abqaiq and Khores. September 14th, which presumably were executed by some combination of Iranian forces, to which there was a quite limited response, which reportedly prompted the Saudis to send signals to the Iranians they want to reduce tensions, which followed an effort by the Emiratis in June after the attack on some ships in the Gulf that they wanted to reduce tensions. How should the U.S. have thought about the response to Iran? Was that an opportunity to say, in the longer term, we're going toward trying to have something that's more sustainable? We understand that Iran's ability for mischief is persistent. We have to lower the temperature. Was it an opportunity for the U.S. to reassert its deterrence against Iran? Was this an effort, was this a time when the U.S. had to move closer to the Gulf states to get them to support the maximum pressure campaign and reassure them the U.S. was there? I mean, that was clearly an opportunity for something. Mm -hmm. That was clearly a, a time that focused Gulf governments thinking about what the future would look like. Given where you think we're going, what should we have done at that moment to try to move things in a constructive direction? Hmm. 
Well, you know, that's a tough question. I, I think the problem is, in that moment, uh, a bit of what Christine alluded to, uh, the absence of tools. In other words, uh, I don't think that we had a, um, a mechanism or a forum for reaching out to both the Saudis and the Iranians simultaneously at that time uh, because of the uh, situation that we had gotten ourselves into with Iran after withdrawing from the agreement and beginning the maximum pressure campaign. So uh, for us to uh, perform, this is a major problem. We typically in this part of the world, the Middle East more broadly, uh, if you went back 20 years, uh, we could function as a sort of honest broker in most parts of this region. Uh, we could come into a room and say, all right, everyone in the room, sit down, let's have a talk. Uh, <clears throat> not so easily with the Iranians publicly and so forth, but we could reach out to everyone and uh, we did not, we were not perceived as uh, in quite the way we are now. And I, I think we don't have that, we didn't have that capacity at the time of the Abkate strike. Uh, re remember, if you went back to May of, um, 2018 or 2017. Uh, Secretary Pompeo had made a speech in which he laid out 12 demands of what we wanted from Iran. And I think as Christine was uh, suggesting, if you looked at those demands, it, it meant uh, fundamentally uh, regime change. It meant change everything about the way you operate in the world. And instantly it was apparent that uh, none of that was going to happen, that it was an unrealistic set of demands. Uh, and so in that atmosphere, I think the administration is left in the case of something like Upcake with very little other than the military option. And there you run up against uh, President Trump's understandable uh, desire not to get sucked into a um, military confrontation in the Middle East, and I think, reading his mind a little bit, I think that's why he held back. If you go back and look at that period, one day it would be, we're going to do something, the next day not so sure, the next day we're going to do something, so there was a kind of uh, uh, wobbly approach to it. Um, so I guess what I've said is there are things we should ideally do, but we're not equipped to do in that instance. And uh, again, I saw a bit of this, the, the separation that's grown up between the Saudis and the Iranians in, in Munich, not just optically, but at one point the um, Minister Zarif from Iran said that after the Soleimani killing, the Saudis had sent a message to Iran he didn't say what it said, but presumably one of, if not sympathy, at least one of uh, acknowledgement and concern that this was a, a serious and uh, painful thing for them. And he said that we immediately responded to Saudi Arabia, but we never heard back. And uh, then he said, I think we didn't hear back because the U.S. probably persuaded the Saudis not to respond. 
I don't know whether that's true, but that's the way they think about the two of us now. And uh, so I'd stop there. I think we were just didn't know what to do after Abcake, so, didn't so, have the tools. So let me ask Christine the really hard question, which is if you want to reassert the honest broker role, you want to reassert the influence, but in the intermediate and longer term, you say we're going to have a lighter footprint, we're not going to sustain the dominant role, how do you build credibility and confidence with partners in the Gulf if it's part of a longer term effort that you've described of we can't remain preoccupied with the Middle East, we have other things to do, we actually have to lower the temperature. So in fact, we're trying to, to negotiate from a, a position of strength while we are, in the mind of many, on our way out the door. Mm -hmm. how, how do we handle that? Yeah, I think that's a good question, and I think it was you know, certainly something the previous administration struggled with quite a bit. You know, obviously, the, the Obama administration was trying to pivot, rebalance, whatever you want to call it, to, to Asia and was, and was viewed by many as, as disengaging from the region and, and, and hence you know, having difficult relations with some of the countries in the region. In my mind, there's a difference between being uh, an honest broker and, and being kind of the power player in the region, if you will. I, you know, I, I think where, where the United States needs to go um, for, for its own interests and, and maybe you know, is, is going to go anyway because of some of the things John pointed to with the fact that our, that our influence in the region is um, declining over time, you know, I, I think we're moving to more, you know, we're at a moment in time where the international order that, that was developed in the wake of World War II with all of the institutions and the norms and the United States, you know, playing a very important role in that, we're, we're in a position of flux and change. And, um, you know, that, that order, I think, is, is evolving to something that is not quite as US-centric um, as it has been for the last two decades. And I would argue that the United States can still be, uh, and I think can usefully be, an important player in the, United, or in the Middle East, rather, but does not have to be, you know, kind of the sole security guarantor sort of main player that we have been uh, over the last two decades. So, so I don't see that. And, and again, there's a difference between you know, being an honest broker, which is I think more about um, trying to look a little bit more dispassionately and evenly at the set of challenges we have in the region. I think one of the you know, to me, it feels right now the United States has has shifted to a place where you know we are we are all in with um, Saudi Arabia and all in with Israel, um, in a way that we haven't been for the last ten years, and that I think is um, one of the reasons I think we're not seen as much of a, as an honest broker as we used to be. I think we're also not seen as much as an honest broker because we're quite in, unpredictable. Uh, and, and going to sort of, John, your question about the, the kind of cycle of provocations and escalations we've been in, part of deterrence is you know, continuity and being consistent. And I think when you're, it's, it's harder to 
deter credibly and harder to avoid miscalculation and miscommunication when you are not being consistent in, in what is important to you and what your interests are. And that's something I think that we've really been quite inconsistent about. So, so I don't think that we're necessarily, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to shift both our, um, you know, our kind of strategic center of gravity and much less our footprint in the region. We're not going to be able to shift to Asia and still be the center in the Middle East the way that we have been. I think, you know, you can't necessarily have your cake and eat it too. But I also don't think that um, making adjustments means that the United States will have nothing to say and no useful role to play in, in the region. I, I think this is something we have to try to do gradually over time. Uh, you know, I, I think under the previous administration, there was a sense that we were on, embarking on something, a, a gradual shift. Um, that, um, but, but the current administration has come in and, take, and taken, I think, a very different approach. Uh, yeah, uh, just, you, you, right, John rightly identifies the upcake strike on the Saudi oil facilities as a big deal. It, I don't recall the exact percentage of the field it took out, but it was sizable. 50% of production. 50% of production. It was, uh, it was not a small event. And I think you asked the question because it was strikingly large, uh, in, in that part of the world and for the international energy market. I think the reason we, if you had to boil it down to its essence, the reason we didn't respond uh, more strongly is that we were, you have to always go back to the moment. We, we didn't know what we know now, and I think we're still confused about this, but at that moment, I think we were concerned about the escalatory cycle that could follow. In other words, had we done something militarily to punish Iran, where would that have gone? In that moment, I would have said, you're, you're on an escalatory cycle here that could get really rough given the capabilities of the Iranian military in the Gulf, elsewhere, and their ability to deploy proxies like Hezbollah, okay? I think that would have been the discussion had one taken place, if one took place at that time. Jump ahead to the Soleimani killing. Uh, most of us thought that would provoke a more immediate retaliatory response than it has. And we may simply not have, we may not be seeing it yet because Iran may respond quietly, covertly, gradually over time. We don't know where that's going yet. But the instant analysis from a lot of people is not much happened. So I think we are left uncertain about how the escalatory cycle really works with Iran in the circumstances that have emerged over the last two years. And I think that's gonna to continue to make it hard for us to make decisions about how to interact with Iran when they do something that is um, dramatically uh, offensive to us. Um, we, we just have a few minutes left. I still want to go to the audience for a few questions, but there's something that, that keeps bothering me, and I hope that one or both of you will put my mind at rest. We keep responding in fundamentally conventional ways yeah. to fundamentally asymmetrical threats. Mm -hmm. We keep 
fighting forces that are infinitely weaker than we are, and the perception is we're not winning. What do we need to think about differently so we get out of the trap yeah. of flailing with overwhelming conventional force and showing that we still remain vulnerable to unconventional force in part because we're afraid of precisely the kind of escalatory yeah. things you, you've talked about? Well, boy, you really ask tough questions, but I, I think uh, to me the answer to that is uh, orchestrating all of the instruments of U.S. Uh, power simultaneously, not just thinking of the military instrument, which is not all that useful to you in some of these situations. Our diplomacy is not particularly vigorous at the moment. Uh, I am so diplomatic. Uh, I mean, diplomacy practiced heroically, is the phrase I always use, can be enormously powerful for a country like the United States. And we aren't orchestrating that arm of our U.S. government in, with force standing behind it in the way that we normally do. Um, that's one way to think about uh, and dealing with asymmetric threats. Uh, another comment I have to make is we don't really know what we may be doing asymmetrically against asymmetric threats. I'm no longer in the government, but uh, there is, you know, we, we too engage in hybrid warfare of a sort, uh, seeking to influence countries overseas through means that aren't always visible, uh, including cyber. Again, I'm not revealing anything here, I'm just saying the U.S. has capabilities, and we may not be seeing how we're using all of these capabilities to counter the asymmetric threats. But I think the fundamental problem is, uh, particularly in this administration, we aren't orchestrating all of the aspects of U.S. power to uh, head off these problems and when they occur to dampen them, deal with them, deter them. Um, I think our understanding of deterrence is all mixed up right now. I would just completely agree on that and double down and say that, you know, what have, what have historically been our strengths? It has been our soft power. It has been our diplomacy. And, you know, just at the moment where we should be leaning into that, we are, we are decreasing the size, for example, of our staff in the embassy in Baghdad. We, you know, we have cut the funds for reconstruction in places like Syria and things like that. You know, we're, we're backing away from development assistance, security cooperation assistance. And we're also, you know, another huge strength for the United States, you know, across the board globally is our relationships with allies and partners, our, you know, our um, network of alliances. And that, that is a strength we can bring to bear against these asymmetric challenges. But again, it feels to me that, you know, you can't, you know, at a, at a time when you're punching the Europeans in the face about Huawei and 5G, for example, and, and I do very much think, frankly, we need to be concerned about Huawei and 5G from a security perspective, but it is not a surprise to me that we are having a hard time finding places of agreement with our European allies and friends um, to deal with these problems when we have so much friction in our relationships with them. So I think that's something also that we could be handling in a very different way. That, you know, we shouldn't kid ourselves. The Middle East is an incredibly complex region, and there are many of you in the audience that know far more about those complexities than I do. But 
but we are we are leaving some of our useful tools on the table right now. Yeah, just just to, I hate to keep harping on the Iran nuclear agreement, but it deserve, it's worth it. In that situation, if if you could have orchestrated a combined response, first off, that might not have happened if we were still in that agreement. But if we were and something comparable happened, you could have had the tools to orchestrate a response that would have involved Russia, China, and frankly, all of our European partners, given that the EU was involved along with the British and the French and the Germans. Um, the Chinese, in their dealings with Iran, uh, at one point even conditioned what they were preparing to do with Iran on its compliance with the uh, Iran nuclear agreement. So even though in current circumstances, we can probably worry that the Chinese and Russians may be helping Iran circumvent sanctions, prior to that, uh, by and large, they were assisting in pressuring Iran in line with that agreement. So I really think, uh, and this is enormously controversial, anytime you talk about it in any audience, someone will stand up and make a case that it was a terrible agreement. And must, that case must lurk in the audience here somewhere. Uh, but it's my view that it was uh, a realistic, pragmatic approach to a difficult problem that gave us leverage we threw away. And that plays in every one of these things we're now talking about. Um, if we might, might take two very quick questions from the audience and we'll ask them together and then uh, Barbara, it's going to be a question about Iran. I know that. Is there a second question as well? Yeah. Okay, wait for the microphone if you would. If you identify yourself. We, we could ask Barbara questions about Iran. Oh. Yes, we could. Sure. Uh, Barbara Seiden from the Atlantic Council, and, and I heartily agree with your analysis. Um, I'm wondering if the uh, accidental shootdown of the Iranian airliner, um, uh, sorry, the Ukrainian airliner was not what basically uh, put a stop to the escalatory cycle at that point because Iran had to deal with the shock of that and the protests that emerged uh, in society after that. And um, I mean, it's, it's one of those, those what ifs, but very plausible. Okay. I'm, I'm just curious about so that. There's Your one question on and the second question right here. Hi, Andrew Gilmore, I'm Center for Studies Statesmanship at Catholic University. Um, John, I guess as my old boss, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this question. Uh, looking at the architecture, the systemic architecture of the region, you have lots of regional powers asserting themselves in ways that we're not used to. Um, is it possible that the way for the U.S. to conceive of its strategy before any great power uh, strategy uh, is necessary is to start working in that multipolar environment with these different regional powers and starting to leverage the fact that we can do things um, in a system that is uh, characterized by lots of opposing regional powers that we can, on the outside, begin to balance some of that and assert our interests by managing a more multipolar environment uh, of competing regional powers. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm happy to do a quick take on both of these. Barbara's question is really interesting because I've had the same feeling that, you know, the, the, when the uh, IRGC shot down that Ukrainian airliner, I think it was on the 8th of January, 
I'm losing track of that. That's what I remember. But it was the same day, or within a 24-hour cycle, that they had rocketed the American base in Iraq. And I, my suspicion is, uh, having hung around wars, this was a fog of war issue. In other words, they were expecting retaliation. They stupidly made a mistake and hit this plane. And that, by all accounts, has really diminished their prestige in, in Iran. Uh, I think the Iranian public is torn between objecting to the, the Soleimani killing and being appalled at the incompetence of the IRGC. And that's the first time I can remember anything like that with regard to that institution in Iran. So I think you're right. I believe it did interrupt the escalatory cycle. The question is, for how long? Uh, you know, will they, will all of this sort itself out? Uh, you know, I've followed, as you have, Iranian protest movements over many years. They, they're always put down. And I have wondered, because of the willingness of the regime to be brutal, I've wondered if this is a different cycle, and I don't know the answer to that. It's different in some way because of that factor and because, strikingly to me, uh, the most striking thing was that members of the Iranian broadcast network resigned. Uh, never seen that before, the, the state uh, network, uh, because they didn't want to be putting out false information. Well, that's a big deal. So. I don't think it's going to turn out to be different. Most Iranian experts who follow this even more closely say, no, it'll, it'll normalize again and we'll be right back to where we were. Put a 10% doubt in that. Let's, let's just see. On Andrew's point, I think uh, that's kind of what I was driving at that, um, and we'll see what the next panel says on that, because we have historic relationships with these other countries. Uh, you're talking about other major powers in the region. Uh, Egypt, uh, I mean, when you talk to Gulfies, they don't just talk about, excuse me for the Gulf people here to call you Gulfies. But when you talk to people from the Gulf, they don't just talk about the Gulf. Uh, in fact, again, going back to my discussions in Munich, that, that panel of foreign ministers was discussing Libya. I mean, they think outside of their Gulf region. And uh, so we have historic relationships with all of these countries uh, uh, that we could, this is our power in that region. It's, it's the ability, none of these countries are seeking to be allies of China. They are quite willing to negotiate with China over economic and energy issues. 20 years from now, China may be a softer power than it is today. Right now, it is, its soft power is not great. That's a whole other issue, whether it could develop an alternative model that would be appealing to people. But um, yes, if we could um, uh, properly staff our embassies with the very best professionals, um, if we could, uh, you know, my friend Ryan Crocker, uh, you know, uh, one of the great ambassadors, always uses the word engagement, which seems like just a simple idea, but engagement means being in their face all the time with relationship building. We're good at that. Uh, so 
I think we can checkmate China's influence in that way uh, while with the kind, and backed by the kind of military deployments that Christine has talked about. I think we have currently 13,000 troops in uh, Kuwait and Qatar and three, three to 5,000 scattered elsewhere. We don't need a lot of troops in that area. We just need a presence. It's hard to underestimate the effect of American presence, just presence. When I was in Latvia, before we sent battalions there, there was one company of American uh, infantry there in camouflage uniforms. And as I was coming out of the defense ministry, one of their officials looked over at this young trooper and said, tripwire. In other words, just the presence of American forces. They don't have to be enormous, just their presence and their engagement with the country makes a big difference. Um, thank you to both John and Christine for, I think, a, a very lively and thought-provoking start. We have some coffee and refreshments in the back. If we could take 10 minutes and come back uh, at 10.15 for the next panel, I would be grateful. Please join me in thanking John and Christine. Welcome back. I think we didn't solve all the problems on the last panel, so we'll try to solve them all on this one, so General Votel will have an easier time when he comes. Uh, right now, we're, we're going to shift over to thinking about some of the more diplomatic aspects of this problem set. And one of the things we heard from the previous panel is a lot of the, the solutions come from uh, the diplomatic toolkit, we have a really another remarkable panel to help us think through that. Uh, to, on the extreme right, from your perspective, Ambassador Ann Patterson is the former Assistant Secretary of State for New Eastern Affairs. She was the ambassador to four different countries, Egypt, Pakistan, Colombia, and El Salvador. She was also the Assistant Secretary of State for National Law Enforcement, the aptly named Drugs and Thugs portfolio, and she was the acting ambassador and deputy ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, next, we have Ambassador Doug Silliman. He's the president of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He previously served as the U.S. ambassador to Iraq and Kuwait and was the deputy chief of mission in Baghdad and Ankara. At the end, Dr. Ali Vaez is the director of the Iran Project and the International Crisis Group, where he previously served 
as senior Iran analyst before he joined ICG. He headed the Iran project at the Federation of American Scientists. Uh, he has a PhD in biomedical sciences from the University of Geneva, a master's in international policy from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where he studied with John Alterman. So I'm very, <laughs> I'm quite delighted to have Ali on the stage as well. Um, it, it seems to me that, that the last panel kind of kicked it all to you guys and said this is a fundamentally diplomatic problem set. What are the unexploited diplomatic opportunities that we're not addressing? I'm not even talking about the low-hanging fruit, although it's interesting to talk about those, but, but diplomatically, what are the big things that we need to do that we're not doing? Yeah. So I wanted to pick up where the last panel left off. And uh, I'm going to leave Doug and Ali to discuss the key issues about Iran and Saudi Arabia and what we might do about that. Uh, but I wanted to make a few introductory remarks about the state of American diplomacy in the Gulf and, frankly, in the Middle East generally. And simply put, it's eroded dramatically. And what are the implications of this? Uh, that we don't know what's going on out there in key areas. Um, it's not just about sending a high-level person out to, to bust heads, although that has a role, obviously, in, in some cases. Uh, but we just don't get about like we used to. Um, and I suspect, relevant to the Gulf, that this is particularly true in Saudi Arabia, where we don't know what's going on with the clerics, we don't know what's going on with the royal family, and we don't know what's going on outside the major cities, although many people are visiting there. Uh, and this is a truly destructive um, result of what took place in Benghazi, although in fairness it had been going on for years after the Beirut bombings and the bombings of our embassies. Um, Basra is closed, our consulate in Yemen, our embassy in Yemen is closed, our embassy in Libya is enclosed. Um, after the Jeddah attack, we went back to one year in Saudi Arabia instead of the three and four years. So what are the implications of this, apart from not knowing what's going on without which diplomacy can't succeed? We look afraid, and it aggravates enormously the sense of withdrawal on the ground, because when you ask somebody to come to your fortress embassy instead of going to their office, uh, the signal is you're afraid to engage with the local population, and the sense of withdrawal, I think, is, is, is much more dramatic. So the first imperative, I think, is to build up diplomatic capacity in the Middle East and enable people to get out. And to do that, we have to take more risk, and we have to have people that speak the language, and we have to have people that are there for longer than a year. So what are the opportunities? There are still opportunities. Uh, the first, I would say, is to do everything we can to heal the rift among the GCC countries. I would be the first to say that people in the administration uh, have worked on this. But it was always perceived as a second-tier event. It really had very little to do with Iran. It certainly had nothing to do with Israel's security. It really didn't affect the flow of oil and gas from the Gulf. So it was always sort of relegated. It was never a high-level issue, I would argue. Um, but I think it does have implications, really serious implications, and that's what I would call the spillover effect. Because what we have seen is this, this, this rift has been weaponized 
in places like Libya, in places like the Horn of Africa. There's certainly potential, I would think, for it to be weaponized with the peace deal with the Taliban. And of course, the Russians, and General Lotel, I'm sure will speak more about this, have taken enormous advantage of this. Um, so I think we need to do everything we can. The U.S. needs to do everything it can to, to work on this. I think it's very unfortunate that the GCC is collapsing. I know the security architecture was always uh, sort of a myth, uh, but the fact that the U.S. was there and working on this, there were, I think, modest, uh, modest successes over time. There were certainly successes on the economic side, and they're pretty boring, like postal integration and economic integration, but there were things worth doing. And I want to mention one more reason we should work on the Gulf and the GCC, and that's the IMF report that came out about uh, two weeks ago. And what the report said was that, and I know many of you in the audience are very familiar with the Gulf will sort of poo-poo this because uh, scholars and others have been predicting the fall of the House of Saud for like 70 years, but it basically said that without massive fiscal improvements, the countries in the Gulf would have serious financial issues in 15 years. Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, Kuwait and Qatar and the UAE would be insulated, insulated because of their sovereign wealth funds. But Harrods had a very interesting article about the implications of this, which would be they would turn on each other. Assistance to Jordan and Lebanon and the Palestinians would drop. And very critically, because I think this issue has been understudied by scholars, guest workers would be sent home to already struggling countries like Egypt and Pakistan. So in other words, I think given our long-term strategic objectives in the Gulf, we need to do everything we can to encourage security and energy integration, no matter how hard it will be. I don't think it'll be all that hard if we concentrated on it and to work on this for our long-term um, long uh, uh, objectives. And then finally, on the opportunities, there's Yemen. Uh, and I know Doug's gonna talk about this as well. Uh, four years ago, five years ago when this started, I think it would have been a lot easier to get the Iranians out because they were basically just doing it to stick it to the Saudis and they had no real strategic uh, interest in Yemen. I think it's probably a lot harder now, but I'm not sure. But this is, a, this is an issue that just cries out for sustained U.S. engagement to try and reach some sort of settlement because the humanitarian um, costs are so high. And secondly, a real cost, as my colleague Jerry Firestein keeps saying, is it has ruined the Saudi relationship with the U.S. And that, that has strategic implications too. So we need to do everything we can to repair that, and that would be the next place I would put U.S. diplomatic emphasis. Thank you. Um, during the crisis in early January, at one point I was uh, on Fox News and talking to um, uh, a couple of their anchors, and they played for me the clip from Senator uh, Rand Paul when he said, this it means the death of diplomacy. So, Mr. Ambassador, how do you react to that? And I said, I can't have been a diplomat for 35 years and actually believe that diplomacy will ever be dead. And I think what you heard at the beginning of the first section, the first session is there are really lots of opportunities for diplomacy. It's just that that is not the priority either of the academic community or of the administration to identify and implement right now. 
Uh, the final question we had that came from over here about the growth of multipolarity is actually where I wanted to start my discussions. Looking at the Middle East, and particularly now in my new job, as I, I was in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi last week, I've been all over the Gulf, um, the United States is no longer the only game in town in the Gulf or in the Middle East. And that means that the Emiratis, the Saudis, the, the Qataris, the Kuwaitis, the Omanis are looking for other alternatives for commercial goods. They may purchase their 5G infrastructure from China and not the United States or Europe. But what also struck me is that looking around the region, we'll restrict it to the Gulf right now, there is no other country that is able to pull together the different um, regional powers, the different international powers like the United States. Uh, some people want to, want to draw a parallel between the British withdrawal from empire after World War II, where Britain physically gave up colonies and uh, retired back to uh, the UK territory. The United States is actually not doing that. First of all, we aren't a colonial power in the traditional sense. We don't occupy countries and run them around the world. What we have is a number of cooperative agreements where we have soft economic power, US military presence, um, often, and in most good cases, guided by an embassy with a, a very broad representation of US government. So even though the United States is going to be relatively less powerful militarily and economically in the near term, we aren't actually losing much of our influence or our power or our deployment unless we choose not to use it. Uh, so looking, again, specifically at the Gulf, there are a number of things that probably need to be done. There are lots of opportunities given the, um, the very quick escalation that happened at the end of 19 and the beginning of 2000. Uh, what I saw was conscious decisions by both Washington and Tehran to walk back from a, to from a, a war between the United States um, and Iran. And I actually disagree a little bit with the evaluation of the first panel on uh, whether or not there would be further U.S. or Iranian escalation after the killing of Soleimani. I think because the United States took direct responsibility for killing Soleimani, Iran felt uh, it had to respond directly as Iran, and therefore the missile strikes on uh, the Iraqi bases that had U.S. soldiers were Iran's parallel strike to even the playing field. But after that escalation in near war, both sides went back to the status quo ante. So you saw Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mnuchin double down on sanctions, uh, sanction new people. You saw the Iranians saying, we are not going to do anything for now, but a whole host of Iranian proxies in the region, especially in Iraq, said, we have not yet taken our retribution for the killing of Soleimani and Abu Mehdi al-Mahandis, the, the Iraqi militia leader. So what, what both sides have done is walked to the brink, decided they didn't want to jump off, and gone back to their, uh, their areas of comfort, which for Iran is uh, support for proxies, and attempting to put pressure on the allies of the United States to reduce the impact of US economic sanctions and for the United States to double down on economic sanctions and try to pick out individuals who might have, uh, where the individual impact could potentially work on Iranian policy. Uh, several areas, and this is really more for discussion, I throw them out because I'm not sure that anybody's working on them, where I think there is a real role for American diplomacy 
but it's American diplomacy to build international alliances with our European allies, with our Gulf allies, with Israel, and potentially, uh, in some cases, even with China. Uh, first of all is a JCPOA 2.0. It's pretty clear the Iran nuclear agreement is not coming back in the way that it was negotiated before. But it's also pretty clear that Iran is willing to move in that direction. And Javed Zarif, over the course of last summer, laid out on three different occasions slightly different visions of what Iran might be able to accept, including um, accelerating uh, the additional protocol by a couple of years, seemingly in a way that President Trump could claim that he had gotten a better deal on a nuclear deal than Obama had gotten. There seemed, that seemed to be the direction. If you look at the use of Iranian ballistic missiles against US forces in Iraq, you can also see that, in, to a large extent, I think that Iran's strategic uh, projection is going to be more easily done with missiles than with nuclear weapons, because one, it doesn't have the same international implications if you are using conventional warheads. And Iran was able to use those ballistic missiles to strategic effect. If you look at the attack on Abqaiq, it wasn't ballistic missiles, but it what appears to have been um, cruise missiles guided by drones. Again, a huge technological leap by Iran. So Iran may not be as concerned about keeping its nuclear weapons program uh, as it might have been in the past. That also brings us to the second issue. How do we work with our allies in the Gulf and partners in Europe and the international community to, redu to reduce the regional threat of Iran's missile uh, missile programs. Again, there's lots of experience in the US government, in the State Department, in DOD, and DOE, and elsewhere on how this, how you can walk into an effective uh, arms control agreement, especially missile control agreement. I'm not sure anybody's going there now. But when I'm in the Gulf, the big elephant in the room is not nuclear weapons or ballistic missiles. It's actually support for proxies. Um, and the Gulfies are very concerned. Again, apologies. Uh, those in the GCC countries are very concerned about um, <coughs> continued Iranian interference in, with groups in their societies that oppose their policies. Um, this is now more prominent in Iraq and Syria than it has been in the Gulf, and I think that the mm -hmm. maximum pressure campaign has probably reduced the amount of money that the Iranians have to fund some of these external activities. Um, and again, this is something maybe even Ali can address. Uh, we have been hearing some indications that the Iranians are tiring of specifically support to the Houthis in Yemen. One, it hasn't really done much except prolong a war and gig the Saudis a bit, but it is expensive. The Houthis are not really good Iranian allies. They are too disunited, uh, and they have not always used Iranian training and weapons the way that Iran might have intended. So there may be an opening. Um, through the UN, uh, potentially, for discussions to de-escalate in Yemen as an opening to discussion of other security issues. Um, it's also possible, and Ali and I were in a group uh, at, uh, at NDU a few weeks ago, where there was some talk of a larger discussion of regional security issues that might bring in uh, missile programs, support for proxies, Gulf security, numbers of US forces, in the region and their capabilities, numbers of other allied forces, uh, all as bargaining chips with the Iranians to have them reduce their support for groups. So again, I lay out these issues not because much is happening on them,
but I see opportunities for the United States to grab some of these diplomatically and move forward, but we can't do it unilaterally. It's going to have to be done with our allies. We'll have to get over this growing multipolarity in the world. We will have to bring together the most influential nations and the most affected nations, probably in different groups for these different issues. Thank you. Annie? Thank you very much, John. It's a great pleasure to be at CSIS. And now that you've uh, taken credit for my education, I hope you also <laughs> take the blame for whatever mistakes I make today. Um, but um, I'm, uh, I thought it might be useful to shed some light on Iranian strategy here. The first panel, I think, did a good, did a good job in discussing the confusions around the US strategy. Now, the Iranians, as you well know, uh, for the first year of the Trump administration's maximum pressure strategy, adopted a policy of maximum patience. So they decided to basically stay in the nuclear deal to the extent possible, sit on their hands, and be careful in the region. The number of skirmishes between the US Navy and the Iranian Navy came down. Israel targeted Iranian assets in Syria hundreds of time, times, and the Iranians basically didn't respond um, in the hope that um, they can isolate the US and uh, thereby neutralize US sanctions. The policy really didn't work at the end. The Europeans and others really couldn't save the Iranian economy. So as of May 2019, when we pushed for basically bringing Iran's oil exports to zero, uh, the Iranians decided to adopt a policy of maximum pressure of their own. Uh, and this took two different forms. One, in the nuclear realm, every 60 days, they uh, took a step back from their obligations under the JCPOA. Uh, and in the region, we saw a string of attacks starting from limpet mines on uh, uh, tankers in the port of Fajera in the UAE, to uh, attacks on tankers in the Gulf of Oman, to the east-west pipeline in Saudi Arabia, to shooting down of the drone, to uh, the very brazen attack on Saudi Aramco. Now, uh, this obviously culminated in the killing of General Soleimani and then Iranian retaliation. And I agree with Doug that um, it, the, for the Iranians, uh, taking a direct strike on a US military installation somewhere in the region was crossing a psychological threshold. Um, in the same way that killing an Iranian general by the US was crossing a red line. So the Iranians basically wanted to establish that uh, this cannot happen again, and the Iranians have deterrence of their own. And if you talk to US military officials, and I'd be curious what General Battelle would say about this, uh, um, from what I've heard, everybody agrees that Iran, what Iran did was quite risky. That we're, it's just sheer luck that no one was killed in the attacks on uh, Ain al-Assad base uh, uh, in Iraq. Uh, but in any case, um, now there is a debate in Tehran about whether they should go back to maximum patience for the remainder of uh, President Trump's first term and then reassess after the November elections or to stay where they are, or even double down on their uh, own maximum pressure strategy. And there are arguments on both sides. You can, I, I think, probably guess uh, who's advocating for what within the Iranian system. Uh, the more moderate forces of Iranian politics obviously want uh, to uh, go back to uh, maximum patience, and the IRGC and the more hardline, hardline elements uh, are quite content with what they have done uh, in terms of regional pushback, because they believe it has demonstrated Iran's capabilities. Uh, a lot of people in the region were uh, concerned, afraid, impressed by the accuracy of the missiles that Iran used uh, in the attack on Saudi Aramco, for instance, or even the missiles, uh, the ballistic missiles on uh, uh, US bases in Iraq. 
Um, it has demonstrated the vulnerabilities of the other side. Uh, the fact that we didn't have a single Patriot missile uh, basically protecting uh, the bases in Iraq, uh, or not a single missile uh, was fired at the low-flying cruise missiles that were coming to hit Aramco. Uh, and finally, I think to a certain extent, they wanted to drive a wedge uh, in this anti-Iran coalition that the Trump administration has put together. Uh, and their view is that that has been a relative success. We saw some shift in the UAE position, maybe not a 180, but at least some de-escalation uh, intentions. Uh, and even with the US, by September, uh, we came pretty close uh, to a potential de-escalation package uh, that President Macron of France, of France was trying to mediate. So you put all of us together, uh, there is a debate in Tehran about the costs and benefits of uh, continuing on this path. But the biggest question is, uh, how do we change Trump's calculus? And if Trump is there for another four years, so we're talking about another five years of uh, Iran under sanctions, uh, what should Iran do? Uh, and I think the majority view is Iran should not become another Cuba, a country that just gets to live under sanctions for years and years, or another Iraq that was basically significantly weakened under sanctions and then toppled easily with a, with a push. So um, my own sense is, also given the results of the elections past Friday, that the hardliners now have the upper hand in Iran, and the more moderate forces of Iranian politics are more and more isolated. So. If I wanted to bet, and it's a risky thing to bet uh, in Washington in front of a crowd, but I'll do it anyways. And C-SPAN is here. And C-SPAN. Um, <laughs> is that I think the Iranians would probably slow down the nuclear escalation, because on that front, we have ended up in a um, implicit less for less situation. The Iranians obviously are doing less uh, with regards to uh, their obligations under the nuclear deal, and they're getting less out of it. Uh, but I don't think they want to escalate any further out of fear that they would push the, the Europeans into the arms of the Trump administration. Uh, and there's a major milestone coming up for the Iranians, which is uh, the lifting of the UN conventional arms embargo in October that I think the Iranians really care about because this would be the first time in many years that they would be able to buy conventional arms and maybe narrow uh, the gap uh, in, uh, in uh, conventional capabilities in the region. Um, so they're keen on keeping the deal alive uh, until October, and then obviously between October and November, we're talking only about a few weeks to get a sense of who the next US president would be. Um, uh, so on the nuclear front, I think we'll see a slowdown, but on the regional front, uh, I think that the hardliners will get the upper hand, but they would do it in a way that is comfortable for Iran. You know, Iran has a lot of experience operating in this gray zone of asymmetric warfare. Uh, and what is likely, I think, is that they would try to um, impose a cost on the U.S. in places that plausible deniability doesn't work well by targeting U.S. assets. So you'll see a lot of rockets fired near U.S. diplomatic facilities in Iraq, uh, even near U.S. companies like Exxon in the south of Iraq, just to make life very difficult for U.S. forces without killing Americans uh, in, the, in the hope that it would result in some sort of a drawdown of U.S. forces in Iraq, which would mark a political victory for the Iranians. Um, but then in places that there is plausible deniability, I'm afraid the Iranians might even try to go after 
uh, Americans. Uh, and one of those places that is of particular concern to me, not necessarily a focus of, of our discussions today, but is Afghanistan. Uh, if this deal with the Taliban falls right. apart, um, the Iranians might, uh, and they have ties with the Taliban, uh, and they might try to go after U.S. forces in, in Afghanistan, where plausible deniability works much better than in Iraq, Syria, or Lebanon. Uh, so that is a major concern. But I think one question that I hope uh, either we can answer in this panel or uh, at the next panel, which is fundamental uh, to resolving this dilemma and um, uh, and shifting towards the grand strategy priority of uh, um, uh, great power competition uh, is to answer these two questions. One, what level of Iranian influence can we tolerate in the region? Because obviously there's a ceiling to Iranian influence as a Persian nation among Arabs and Turks, as a Shia nation among Sunnis, uh, but there's also a floor uh, to their influence. They're part of the region, they're of the region, we can't uh, exclude them from the region. And all the coalitions that we have tried to put together in the past few years, from the Middle East Strategic Alliance to uh, Sentinel, the maritime uh, security force in, in the region, uh, to the Warsaw Conference, all of it has been uh, uh, aimed at excluding Iran. These are not inclusive mechanisms that could bring about some sort of a regional modus vivendi. Um, and so the question is, how can we, uh, uh, what degree of Iranian influence is tolerable to us? And then the second is, does Iran have legitimate security concerns? And if we agree that Iran has some legitimate security concerns, what is the solution to them? Because one has to understand, for the Iranians, their ballistic missile program and their forward defense policy, which is basically this policy of hiring proxies and partners around the region to deter a direct strike on their own soil, is their weapon system. So they're not going to give it away, uh, especially under pressure and under threats from the outside. The only way that they might compromise on it is that we change their threat perception. So these are questions that I'm also putting out there for uh, our discussion today. But, but one of the things, thank you very much to all of you, one of the, the, the sort of troubling problems in untying this knot of the US presence in the region <clears throat> is in many ways the, the measure of Iranian success is survival. They're a pretty low bar. The measure of US success, if we were to resort to diplomacy, diplomacy is never done. I mean, there will always be further engagement, a further effort to shape Iranian behavior. There's a way in which we are set up so that the Iranians will always perceive themselves, as long as they survive, to being successful. And we will always see our diplomacy as being on the way to being successful, but not arriving there yet. How do we, how do we deal with that, that problem of defining success in order to encourage a continuation of the, pro of the process? Doug? Oh boy, that's an easy question. Um, what I have generally tended to say, especially to younger diplomats as they enter and come up to the service is the job of a diplomat is very seldom to solve a problem. You occasionally get the opportunity to negotiate an arms control agreement that solves a piece of a problem, but even all the arms control agreements between the United States and the Soviet Union never ended the tensions between the two systems, between the two peoples, the different sets of ambitions. 
Um, most of what we do as diplomats is manage difficult situations so that they do not get out of hand and lead to violence or economic deprivation to the extent possible. And it's hard to define complete and total success when you are looking mostly at keeping the status quo or a slightly improved status quo. Um, yeah, and it's hard to get credit for things that don't happen because people say they wouldn't have happened anyway. Exactly. I mean, but again, if, if you look at the JCPOA, the JCPOA, I mean, Anne can talk to this a little bit more because she was more intimately involved, seems to me to have been a pragmatic attempt by the Obama administration to deal with one of the serious problems um, of Iranian threat, a potential nuclear weapons program. It did not deal with ballistic missiles, really. It didn't deal at all with support for proxies. It didn't touch on human rights inside Iran, religious minorities, political opponents, all the things that others might have wanted to see included in a deal because I assume the Obama administration decided it would not be able to lump all of these things into one agreement and have a successful conclusion. Um, so they necessarily pulled back the scope of the agreement they were working on to have success where they thought success was possible and where there was international consensus. Um, and you saw what happened. There was a, a broad perception, at least in parts of the U.S. political structure, that said this was a, a failed agreement. I think it was not a failed agreement because it was a good application of internationally coordinated economic sanctions on Iran. It was an incomplete agreement that only dealt with part of the perceived problem. And that's, that's the, uh, the problem we have to deal with. Yeah, I think that's right, and I, and, I, and I think the, it's not the official Obama explanation, but I always thought of the JCPOA as a bet. Uh, it was going to take the nuclear issue off the table. The, in the next 10 years, the old boys would die off. There would be openings, and, and the Obama administration, toward the end of its tenure, explored and talked about some of those openings with with Iran, whether it would be counter-narcotics, whether it would be some kind of scientific exchange, whether there were things you could do to sort of bring them back into the international fold. There was never any illusion that there was supposed to address the ballistic missile problem or the proxy problems. Those were always seen as, as way down the road. Um, John, can I just add yeah, something sure. on, on the JCPOA experience? Because I think it actually has some valuable lessons for the path forward. I think we committed mistakes both before and after the JCPOA. Before, in the sense that we started these secret negotiations in Oman, which were critical to the success of the nuclear deal uh, later on. But I think that already uh, burned the bridges to the Gulf countries and also to Israel to a certain extent, because they thought we were trying to deal with the Iranians behind their back. And this is, by definition, going to come at their expense. So now we have tried different scenarios of trying to in either encourage the Gulf countries to negotiate with Iran on their own, or to negotiate with Iran behind their back, or to stop them from negotiating with Iran or de-escalating with Iran, which I think is the case right now. Um, and, and I think the lesson of the JCPOA is that these two processes should happen in parallel. You can't have a separate arms control negotiation and a discussion uh, um, about the region in, uh, in subsequent uh, steps, but rather it, these things have to happen in parallel because any narrow transaction with Iran will not survive in the context of the broader enmity that exists. And second, I think after the JCPOA, we also committed the mistake in order to alleviate the concerns of the Gulf countries. What did we do? We sold them 
uh, billions of dollars worth of arms, right? That exacerbated Iran's sense of conventional weapons uh, asymmetry in the region, pushed them to double down on their support for proxies and partners in the region and on their ballistic missile program, which the Trump administration then used as evidence that the JCPOA was a bad deal because it didn't correct Iran's behavior on those other fronts. What's known in Washington as a self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> um, so if the U.S. were to, to try to engage the Iranians on aspects of missile development, regional behavior, provide a pathway out of the, the, the maximum pressure, what should the regional priorities be? Should it be about the Iranian presence in Iraq? Should it be about Yemen? Should it be about Afghanistan? I mean, we're, if the U.S. were to try to take this pathway on the regional picture, or even the relationship with Saudi Arabia, who needs to be reassured and what kind of reassurance would they find reassuring? The questions don't get easier. <laughs> and I think the Gulf, the Gulf countries have been sort of schizophrenic recently uh, because, because I think what they wanted was for the U.S. to sort of keep Iran in a box and poke at them periodically and stand up. But what they didn't want, and this is where Abkhaz scared them and all the other escalation in the Gulf, they really didn't want a real shooting war, uh, and they became worried about that. One is we didn't respond to Abkhaz, and two, because our response was just inconsistent and incoherent. And that precipitated some of them running off, allegedly, to Tehran to cut their own deal. And, and certainly some of these countries have longstanding relations with the Iranians anyway. So, so I do think they need, I, don't, I think they're in a state of great anxiety right now about what our policy is. And they don't quite know what to do with it. Uh, some of it's their own fault, of course, but I'd be interested in what the other panelists thought. Well, I, went, I was in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi last week, oh. and I was speaking to the uh, Diplomatic Institute in Riyadh and the National Defense College in Abu Dhabi, among other meetings. And in both places, there was uh, <coughs> a lot of interest in the topic that Anne mentioned earlier, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and whether or not the Gulf Cooperation Council is an effective mechanism to pursue Gulf policies or how it can be made more effective. And many of the questions were about what can we do to bring the Qataris back in because the, uh, the schism in the Gulf and Qataris search, Qatar's search for strategic depth anywhere outside the region, most uh, specifically with Turkey, is causing competition, as Anne mentioned, uh, in other parts of the region. There was a beginning of an idea of how can we reunify the Gulf how can, what is it that Riyadh or uh, Abu Dhabi has to do to bring the Qataris back in and to begin to form a unified position on Iran because we don't want to go at this uh, separately. We want to do this together. So one step might be an intermediate step of continuing what this administration has done to try to help uh, the members of the GCC unify themselves. There is a new uh, Kuwaiti Secretary General of the GCC who seems quite energetic as he's starting his mission, literally two weeks in. Uh, but I think that there is a, a mechanism 
that can help and we can provide a bit of a political push that might also provide us a more effective way to canvas the countries of the Gulf, get them on the same page as us as we look at these other strategic questions that we have to, have to address. But I'd note that the, the two diplomats didn't identify any Iranian regional behaviors that we should prioritize to address. It was really about oh, getting well, our own. Oh, that's easy. I think okay. it, my, my own view is that would be Yemen, because I think of all the, the Lebanon, Iraq, and all the other places, that's probably still the easiest, because the Iranian strategic interest is the least. Uh, but there's also a perception our strategic interest is least in Yemen, so, so there would be people who Yeah, but who not object. the Saudis. I mean, here's this country, you know, it's sort of like, as someone said, the Monroe Doctrine, to keep, keep the Iranians off the Arabian Peninsula. So that's, that's I think, where we should start. But, but again, I'm not in government anymore, and the strategic picture may have shifted in the past few years. Uh, I think you can add to that, beginning of discussions with our European allies in the Security Council and with the Gulf states and with Israel, how could we get back into negotiations or discussions on um, a nuclear weapons agreement, a JCPOA 2.0? Uh, the fact that Zarif has laid out some options for moving forward is a good one. I also, however, think that in this discussion, it's going to be pretty clear that Israel and the Gulf states are going to want to move quickly as part of that or on a separate track toward regional security issues, um, support for proxies, uh, ballistic missile programs, um, and maybe, I, I think as Ali may have suggested, there's, a, there's a, uh, a two separate paths there. But I, I think Yemen, as uh, President Macron was sort of pushing for in the summer, may be a way into some discussions yeah. that can then be broadened where there is international consensus. And again, I think that the United States should be working with our traditional friends and allies in Europe, in Asia, in the Gulf, and with Israel to develop that consensus, and we can help shape that consensus um, if we put in the effort and begin to define the longer-term goals. Now, do you think that the Iranians are willing to have serious discussions about proxies? Whenever I talk to Iranian officials <coughs> about their regional activities, they proudly tell me that they just support political parties and they have, you know, they're supporting democracy and because the Shia support Hezbollah, it's not a besmirching of the Iranians, it's a besmirching of us for trying to put down Lebanese citizens. I mean, can, can you have a serious discussion with the Iranians about these proxy activities in your mind? You know, I always say it's not a, the Iranian mentality is not a bizarre mentality, it's a bazaar mentality. It, it really <laughs> depends on what they get in return. So again, when we're talking about the proxies, especially uh, I mean, not all proxies are the same, yeah. especially the ones that are very close to Iran are sort of, you know, you have the kind of alliance that you get between two NATO allies, uh, like Iran and Hezbollah, for instance. Uh, it all depends on, um, uh, on what kind of security assurances we're willing to provide. For instance, I always say this is a really counterintuitive thought, almost amounts to blasphemy if you say it out loud in this city. but. I would argue if the Iranians are able to buy fighter jets after October from Russia, it would actually reduce their reliance on Hezbollah. Because when you think about the proxies as Iran's weapon system, you see this problem in a totally different way than if you look at it from a perspective of many countries in the region, that they see it as an expansionist policy, right? Iran wants to restore the Persian Empire now uh, you know, in, in, in the Shia form this time. 
Um, but, um, but I agree that Yemen is actually a low-hanging fruit. Uh, Yemen is not a major strategic priority for Iran. Uh, and the Iranians have signaled in the past that they're willing to be uh, more uh, helpful on Yemen. The question is, um, again, what would they get out of it? If we define this the way that the Saudis have defined it right now, which I think is problematic, as a way of removing a card from Iran's hands, right, that Iran can't use the Houthis as a way of escalating against the Saudis or the Emiratis or the Americans, uh, I, I think the Iranians are going to try to be the spoiler here. Uh, but if it's resolved in a way that it would uh, help the Iranians also either get a ceasefire with the U.S. in the current escalation path that we're in, so some sort of economic reprieve, maybe not a lot, but enough to allow them to keep their head above the water for the, past, for the next few months or uh, maybe in the short run generally, um, then maybe that's something that they can consider. But uh, again, if we devise, even when we think about diplomacy, we, we still think about it in zero-sum terms, it is going to backfire. One of the themes <clears throat> that's run through this panel is that, that at the core of a lot of this is Saudi-Iranian animosity. I don't think any of us expect that Saudi-Iranian animosity, rivalry, whatever you want to call it, can be completely resolved. But I think it is an important question of how much can we expect it to be mitigated? Can it be a, a sort of a working relationship? What's the sort of, I don't want to say with the floor, what, what should our realistic aspirational goal be for the nature of Saudi-Iranian ties? Well, you, it was that way for decades with the two pillars. Now, I mean, obviously that was before, before was different Iranian government. Different, different Iranian government. But it's not inconceivable that that you could. It, to me, it's not inconceivable that you could go back to some kind of live and let live scenario. But you certainly can't go back to it under the current scenario that we have, which is maximum forever. It's just simply out of the question, for all the reasons that Ali has has outlined. But I think you could get to some kind of, and again, the Obama administration sort of explored and talked about these, some kind of confidence building measures that would, because one of the worries we haven't talked about with the Saudis and the Bahrainis is Iranian interference in the eastern province and with the Shia populations in the Gulf. Um, you could get to some kind of confidence building measures that would get a process started. But I just think it's impossible under the current situation. Well, one of the arguments, of course, is that the way to reassure the Saudis would be to increase the U.S. pressure in Sa the U.S. presence in Saudi Arabia. Except the U.S. is trying to send the opposite signals. We want to reduce our presence in the region. That's the Obama administration's strategy. If we let the region come to its own equilibrium, but the question is what that journey looks like and whether the equilibrium that gets struck is one we find desirable or even acceptable. I mean, one of the issues that we have to deal with that is difficult is the fact that Iran conducts policy at least on two different levels. It certainly conducts a state-to-state -state policy in negotiations, but it also conducts policy through uh, proxies and support for uh, non-governmental groups in many parts of the world, including Latin America and Asia, 
across the globe. So um, one of the things I think that has to happen from the standpoint of the Gulf, maybe Israel, and probably the Trump administration is to draw this question into the discussion in some way. Uh, to a large extent, I think that the decision to kill Soleimani with uh, a drone strike was to show Iran that there were actual consequences for Iranian officials to their unofficial proxy-led policies, at least in Iraq. So uh, again, to some extent, the killing of Soleimani has ripped the Band-Aid off this idea that we will, in our policy, separate between what Iran does and what Iranian-supported groups do. Uh, and that's going to be one of the biggest problems in terms of addressing security unless Iran can be brought into this discussion, as Ali suggests, through a broader regional security, um, I don't know, new paradigm or something that conceives of a role for Iran in regional security that does not produce a regional security arrangement that is aimed at limiting Iran, which is the current, the current step. That's very difficult for this administration. I think that will be very difficult for the Gulf states. Um, I don't know enough about Israeli policy toward Iran and the Gulf to know whether the Israelis could accept it, but I think that's a big leap because uh, it, it may not, it's not a first step. It's got to come farther down in the, in the process, but maybe Yemen is a first step into that much longer discussion. Look, um, I, I, I would make two points. One is that um, I think um, you know, if you look at uh, Iran-Saudi relations, uh, first of all, I don't think they're bound to be enemies forever. Uh, they're maybe bound to be rivals, uh, but not necessarily enemies. And we've seen this movie before in other regions of the world, right? Uh, I mean, it's a cliche, but you look at France, Germany, and Europe. You look at uh, Brazil, uh, Argentina, and, and Latin America. So it's not an unusual setting and it has a solution. I mean, the solution is what, uh, ultimate solution is what Doug was talking about, a regional security architecture in which both sides believe that their uh, interests are, are preserved. The question is how do we get there? Uh, and I would argue that it's the same way that, uh, you know, some of the conflicts uh, are just impossible to uh, resolve, like Israel-Palestinian issue, when we put our finger on one side of the scale. Um, the fact that we've put our finger on uh, the Sunni side of the Gulf uh, is part of a reason this issue cannot be resolved. And even, again, when we have tried to uh, bring about some sort of balance like the Obama administration in the second term, uh, it has been done in ways that it has actually exacerbated the situation. Um, at this stage, uh, you know, I think it's very telling to think that the only de-escalation that has occurred in the past few years in the region has been as a result of the UAE thinking the US is unreliable. That's very telling. That's very telling. That the only positive thing has happened as a result of that, not because of anything positive that the US has done. Uh, and the question is, uh, you know, uh, um, John and I were at the Munich Security Conference. Foreign Minister Zarif mentioned that uh, the Saudis have uh, sent a message I followed up later on, apparently the message was sent through the Emiratis that uh, uh, maybe there should be a security dialogue between Iran and, uh, and Saudi Arabia in Pakistan. Uh, and the Iranians had responded positively, but the Saudis had not followed up, which again, the Iranian interpretation, correct or incorrect, is that it was because of US pressure. Um, I think it's in the US interest without any doubt to try to push both sides, not just the Iranians and the Saudis, but also others, 
into some sort of dialogue, even if it doesn't resolve the issues immediately, but you have to start somewhere. If you look at the Helsinki process, it took years, and actually Kissinger initially was not on board with the process, right? But let it, let it happen. Um, in, in, in thinking that the U.S. has nothing to lose, uh, it would still do its own diplomacy with the Soviets, uh, but, uh, but let these other countries have their dialogues. Uh, and you know, you see countries like Oman, like Kuwait, who've really tried hard mm -hmm. in the past few months to, to figure out a way of de-escalating. But I think the real uh, um, um, obstacle is the Trump administration. Um, why don't we go to the audience for a couple of questions, if you wait for the microphones, right here in the front. I'm, wonder, I'm wondering with Farbors, the recent- you identify yourself, please? Sorry, uh, I'm Farbors Gadar. I'm with Penn State University and on the advisory board of CSIS. Um, my question really has to do with the recent changes in Iran um, and whether you think that the administration or the government in Iran is getting ready to drink the poison. And the reason I say that is that's going back to Khomeini's now, drink the poison and make a deal. Um, the past election last Friday, um, the, the candidates that were offered the populists were all conservative. There was no doubt that the conservatives will have a takeover of everything and Qalibov will now be the speaker of the, of the majlis. That gives the government the capability of making a deal without having to explain to anything, sort of like Nixon going to China. I'm wondering if you all think that that's a possibility, and if it is, what should the U.S. policy be to address any kind of rapprochement in that sense? Thank you. Then maybe if you could pass the microphone to the gentleman on the other end. Thanks. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I believe in uh, weapons evolution, but I don't believe in quantum leaps in weaponry. And so I have to ask, who's helping out Iran with these uh, drones? And shouldn't we be chatting with that nation as well? Thank you. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear the second one. answer. The first question would probably be better. Um, so on uh, the domestic uh, political scene in Iran, um, you know, again, it's one of those counterintuitive things. I don't think the system is uh, becoming more monolithic. In fact. Once you get the conservatives in, all, uh, in control of all levers of power, which is a movie we've seen before, right, in 2004 when Iran's negotiations with the E3 failed and the more moderate forces of Iranian politics were discredited, the same thing happened. There was political apathy by the middle class. They didn't go out to vote. Uh, the system used that uh, context to uh, disqualify a lot of the moderates, uh, knowing that the backlash would be limited. Um, and uh, the parliament was uh, taken over by the hardliners and then the presidency was taken over by ultra-conservative Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Uh, and that created a lot of infighting uh, inside the Iranian government. It didn't turn it into a monolith. Uh, but, but I think what's happening right now is the system basically hunkering down and closing down because it feels that it's under siege from all sides. Uh, you know, the maximum pressure from their perspective is not just an economic coercive policy it's multi-dimensional, there's a covert dimension to it, there's a cyber dimension to it, there's information warfare. So uh, for them, uh, as John said, survival is victory and they are trying hard to survive, 
by trying to close down uh, the circle of elites who are uh, in a decision-making uh, position. That doesn't mean they wouldn't want a deal. Uh, in fact, I think they wanted to deal with President Trump back in September. But there is a misconception about drinking the poison chalice in this town. People don't understand that when Khomeini drank the poison chalice, he didn't bring about the demise of the regime. He didn't compromise on any of the principles of the regime. What he did ensured and guaranteed the survival of the regime. The Trump administration is basically signaling to the Iranians that the only deal that is acceptable to them is a deal that would come at the cost of the Islamic Republic's survival. And that's never going to happen. So it doesn't matter who's in charge in Tehran as long as they believe that they can't get into a mutually beneficial deal with the Trump administration. I don't think there's a serious prospect for diplomacy. And on the question of external help, look, the Iranians, um, uh, you know, have proven over the years. Obviously, they've had some help from the outside, like for ballistic missile programs. They had help from Syria, from North Korea. Uh, you know, they have some cooperation with Russia, some transfers from China. Uh, but, but overall, you know, this is a nation of 80 million. It has uh, really uh, top-notch universities, and uh, and it has actually been able. You know, necessity has no rule, right? Uh, it has been forced to basically develop some indigenous capabilities. Um, that again has created some degree of deterrence. Uh, you talk to uh, Israeli officials, for instance, after uh, the attack on Saudi Aramco, uh, there was some uh, rethinking about the balance of deterrence in the region uh, because this technique of using low-flying low uh, cruise missiles um, and swarming tactics by cheap drones, I mean, these are like ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 drones, uh, you know, if, if these are used against uh, Israeli critical sites like uh, the chemical plant in Haifa or the uh, nuclear plant in Dimona, uh, it's a major game changer. Uh, and it creates all sorts of dilemmas, both for Israeli officials, you know, like, do you address this now when Hezbollah might have 10 of these missiles or do you wait 10 years when Hezbollah has 10,000 of them? Um, at, at the risk of a major backlash that could happen if you take action now. Um, or, um, you know, um, on the Iranian side, for instance, uh, that how far do you push without the risk of uh, getting yourself or your uh, military leaders uh, uh, vulnerable and susceptible uh, to retaliation by the U.S. or its allies in the region? So, uh, again, that's why I'm saying it's, we're in a pattern that is constantly evolving. Uh, but, um, you know, we shouldn't expect the weaker party, which is Iran in this case, uh, to unilaterally um, either uh, capitulate or give away um, capabilities that it sees uh, as critical to its national security. Uh, back to your question about the, um, the hardliners uh, taking over in Iran. I, I think Ali is basically right. As long as there is only pressure to pull down the regime, uh, that it's not going to amount to much. And one of the things that I would like to see is a better articulated and more consensus U.S. foreign policy on Iran itself. Because what I see, what I saw, what I was in the administration and still see is divided opinions. Some people are hoping that economic pressure on Iran is going to cause a collapse of the regime, the Islamic you know, Republic will fall, and something else will come in its place, but it can't be as bad. Others are looking for specific changes to Iranian policies which are inimical to U.S. interests and that those of our allies. Nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles and cruise missiles, uh, support for proxies. And the strategies for these two are entirely different. And I think we are 
kind of mixing this all up together. Um, I'm not confident, I mean, I, every once in a while when I wonder how easy Iran is going to be to negotiate with, I pull out my copy of the Iranian Constitution and read the preamble, which is I mean, anti-American. It talks about exporting the uh, achievements of the, the revolution, supporting the oppressed of the world against the repressors. There is a lot in the basis of the Iranian state which supports um, an expansionist, more radical Iranian policy. Uh, the question in my mind, and this, I'm not an Iran expert, is can a more conservative, harder-line Iranian government um, soft-pedal the revolutionary ideology in exchange for some sort of economic or security benefits? And I think that's, at this point, um, unknown because it hasn't really been tried since the JCPOA. I agree. Yeah. Um, General Votel is waiting. We're going to take a brief break as we set up a podium for his talk. Um, please join me in thanking Ali and Doug and Ann for an excellent presentation. Welcome back. Um, Cliff May, happy birthday. You're welcome. Uh, it's, all, it's all for you. Um, I'm really delighted to welcome uh, General Joseph Votel for our keynote address today. He currently serves as the CEO and President of Business Executives for National Security. Um, he joined there in January 2020, following 39 years of distinguished military service. He served for three years as the commander of the U.S. Central Command. Uh, he, prior to serving as the commander of Central Command, he commanded the U.S. Special Operations Command, the Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, in addition to his current role at the Business Executives for National Security, He's also a distinguished senior fellow in national security at the Middle East Institute, and I'm happy to welcome Paul Salem, the, the president of the Middle East Institute here. Um, he is going to talk about a theme that has come up throughout the discussion this morning, which we're all aware of, but weren't exactly sure what to think about, and I think in about 30 minutes we'll know exactly what to think about it, about how we should think about great power competition in the Gulf. So I'm delighted to introduce General Joseph Hotel. Thanks, uh, thanks very much. It's great, uh, great to be here, John. Thanks for the invitation to be here. Thanks for your flexibility and in scheduling. Um, I'm, I've kind of smiled when I came up here at this little light. I, uh, I, I gave a speech up in New York a couple weeks ago uh, as part of my under part of my responsibilities with. Ben's business executives for national security. And I gave in one of these typical New York clubs up there, very dark and heavily paneled room. Um, and I was speaking from a podium and I asked my staff, hey, please make sure there's a light there because I, you know, it all looks good, but it's broke on the inside here. And, uh, and I, need, I need a little bit of a light on that. And so somehow that translated to my staff, hey, get a light for this guy. And I know they reached out to Olivia here and, and uh, worked her over to make sure she did. So I'll report back to them. You did well. So thank you. Thank you very, very much. 
Um, welcome to all of you. It's great to it's great to be you. I know there's a number of former colleagues in the uh, in the audience. I see uh, representatives from the diplomatic corps here, uh, fellow partners. Uh, thanks for thanks for being here. Good to, good to see you all. Of course, Paul Salem from Middle East Institute, and I know there's a variety of others, both from the Department of State, Department of Defense, and and other other places uh, here. Is John Agolia in the audience? Okay, I have a West Point classmate I thought was going to be here, and I had a few words for him as well, but I'll, I'll hold on that. So I, I have to tell you right up front, I'm coming up on the 11th month anniversary of my retirement from the military. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that. I, I had I, what I would say was a pretty good transition out of the military. I got an association with the Middle East Institute, and that's, I think, really what's bringing me here today. Uh, I've enjoyed that. I'm engaged with business executives for National Security Bends, uh, which has uh, really been a great opportunity to get to know the business world and meet a lot of uh, uh, businessmen and women from across our country. Uh, one of my objectives as I retired was to somehow stay engaged with young people, uh, and so I'm able to do that through a relationship with the Combating Terrorism Center up at West Point and the Belfer Center up at uh, up at uh, the Kennedy School and, and with the University of Pennsylvania the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law. Um, I, I've also wanted to kind of give back, and so I've been able to get onto the boards of a couple of uh, veteran-oriented organizations, to include one which really focuses in on helping young enlisted veterans get into our best schools uh, around the country. So all in all, retirement's been a great opportunity for me to invest my time and energy in doing things that I think matter and are important to me. And if that's not enough, I would say that my wife also reminded me that marriage is for love and not for lunch. And so I was invited uh, after about three or four months of retirement to get, to get busy. And so, and so I have. Um, I think it's appropriate as I, as I speak here today on this topic that we recall that it was about 75 years ago this month when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt met with King Abdulaziz bin Saud. Uh, aboard the USS Quincy in the Great Bitter Lake of Egypt and initiated what would become, eventually become a long relationship between the United States and not only Saudi Arabia, but other countries in the region. And as the story goes, uh, they talked about many things during this, their only meeting. Uh, they talked about their common responsibilities as heads of states. Uh, they talked about their shared view that at the heart of things, they both longed to, to be farmers. And of course, they talked about the fact that their own personal infirmities uh, were both obstacles that they had to overcome in their lives. Franklin Delano Rosie, uh, FDR even left one of his wheelchairs for the king, which became an object of some pride for the, for the Saudis. They eventually came to an agreement that centered around U.S. support and military training for Saudi Arabia, uh, then a fledgling country surrounded by stronger nations in return for oil, and other political and political support in the region. All in all, it was a mixture of personal relationships and national interests that for better or worse has endured for over seven decades. I think it's a fair assessment. Uh, I think a fair assessment can be made that FDR understood that he needed to engage and compete in this area to ensure our access to the critical resources of the re region and to support our interests. Today's topic is great power competition in the Gulf. And my specific job is to talk a bit about the military aspects of this great power competition. And while I think people understand the general notion of great power competition, it, 
Like many other conceptual military or security concepts or ideas, think of things like the war on terror. Think of things like by, with, and through, how we, how we train partners. Think of irregular warfare, the, the soft doctrinal approach to, to uh, competition. It's often, uh, oftentimes difficult to define and understand. I think it's fair to say that great power competition has replaced the war on terror as the preeminent descriptive term of our principal strategic security focus. It certainly has within the Department of Defense. Great power competition is clearly becoming the driving force in identification and characterization of national interests, deployment of forces, budget considerations, capability development, and international relations that support all of this. But great power competition is more about, in my view, is more about prevailing than it is about directly confronting. Correspondingly, it is militarily more indirect than direct. An argument can, is often made in my profession on whether great power competition is actually warfare or not. My personal belief is I believe it does belong on the taxonomy of, of activities leading to open conflict. Competition is often about diverging interests and objectives. Exhibit A, in my experience, is Syria. In this, in this country, this is a, an area where four different countries, Russia, Iran, Turkey, the United States, and others came together for a common purpose to defeat ISIS, but as that was accomplished, began to divert in terms of all of our interests uh, and objectives and, and, and turned much more into a competitive environment over that than over our original purpose for being there. Ultimately, great power competition is about a balance of power and the relationships that support maintaining influence. In today's environment, Great power competition is also about domination of emerging technologies and domains, and the rules that guide ethical, moral, and legal employment activities of these emerging areas. And contrary to what we may be seeing in our policy and in our public communications, great power competition does not mean that alliances and partnerships are not important. They are more important, in my humble opinion, in successfully prevailing in a geostrategic setting dominated by great power competitors. Winning in this environment also has different connotations. It is certainly about beating our adversaries or our enemies, and we always try to do that. But more importantly, in today's strategic context, it's a much more subtle approach. Winning implies several things, I believe. It implies maintaining a competitive advantage outperforming our, our competitors, in business parlance, being seen as a greater value, higher quality, more desired, and more reliable by our partners. Winning is about protecting our interests, those that are essential and those that are important. Winning requires that we maintain our access and relationships and a level of influence and balance of, and balance of power that is more favorable to us than to our competitors and adversaries. An example is our preferential access to passage through the Suez Canal. Despite uh, over a long period of time, we remain the only country that has head-of-the-line privileges there, and that is a distinct advantage of us, something that persisted even during the most difficult days of our relationship with the Egyptians. Finally, winning means providing decision space for our leaders through strategic advantage, relationships, options, planning, available capabilities, and the capacity to go along with all that. 
My main takeaway for each of you today is that we must compete militarily in this region to support our overall national security objective of maintaining competitive advantage against great power competitors. It does not necessarily mean that we do this at the same troop levels or operations or locations that we have for the last several decades. But it does mean a level of policy and planning, presence, relationships, capabilities, activities, and reliance that demonstrates our ability um, to maintain that balance of power that is more favorable to our objectives than others. Any discussion of the Gulf and the surrounding region has to start with a discussion of our interests. I think there are five uh, that are currently present and will be well into the future. First, we have to ensure that the region cannot be used as a platform for terrorists or terrorist organizations to attack our homeland citizens or those of our friends or allies. Secondly, ensuring, we have to ensure that instability in this region does not impact our interests in other regions. One only has to look at the impact of refugees flowing from a place like Syria and the impact it has on Europe and immigration policies and ultimately on our country. Third, we have an interest to, to prevent proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Fourth, we want to preserve access to the critical lines of communication and resources of the region for us and for our allies and partners. And finally, we want to maintain an overall favorable balance of power. It's fair to question these interests, but I think the more important aspect is a discussion of where they fall on the scale of criticality, from important to existential. I would argue that addressing terrorism, instability, and perhaps access are probably important, but may not rise to the level of being existential to our survival as a nation. I would also argue that proliferation and maintaining a favorable balance of power, if left unchecked, could be existential to our security or those of our close partners. I think that the efficacy of an Iranian nuclear weapons program would manifest itself as an existential threat to the country of Israel and would largely be seen the same in our country. My point here is this. There must be a robust discussion of interest in this region and their criticality as part of our national security process. And we have to communicate this better to not only the region and to our great power competitors, but also to the citizens of our country. And secondly, we have to recognize that, the inter that, that interests in areas other than Eastern Europe and the Indo-Pacific are critical components of our overall national security strategy. This is an area where great power competition has and will continue to take place, whether we want it to or not. Some would argue that an equally critical contribution to winning the, global, the Cold War played out in the mountains of Afghanistan with our support to the Mujahideen against the Soviets, just as it did on the central plains of Europe with our large and longstanding military alliance. Today, the waters of the Middle East see a constant presence of Chinese naval vessels. To not recognize the geostrategic implications and opportunities of this region in the over, to the overall idea of competitive advantage against great power competitions, great power competitors is a mistake in my view. It's also important to look at current and emerging threats and influences affecting our approaches to the region. Most of these will be familiar to you, but there may be a little different twist here. I would briefly highlight six areas for you. The topic of the day is great power competition, so we have to start there. 
Russia, while not economically strong, still poses a significant military threat to the United States. They now possess long-term access in the Mediterranean through intervention in Assyria and continue to look for opportunities to supplant our influence and play a role as a deal maker and peace broker in the region. When we step back from a partner, we should expect Russia to step into that void. China is the more significant challenge. Their long-term centrally driven plan to dominate emerging technology, expand markets, and create military parity and where possible superiority poses a direct challenge to the United States that must dominate our security strategy. Across the region, across this region, they are increasing military presence, influence, and activity, principally as an extension of their Belt and Road Initiative. And you only have to look at the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the linkages into the Port of Gwadir, and the routes to the port in, in Djibouti to see an example of this. A second threat influencing our approach to the region, of course, is Iran. I, I view Iran as an injured animal, protecting itself, but capable of lashing out. Given the recent loss of Qasem Soleimani and the tragic events surrounding the shoot-down of a Ukrainian airliner by Iranian forces, we should expect the Iranian leadership to be looking uh, inward and consolidating their partner, their power. This may limit their regional adventurism in the short term. In this is an opportunity to keep the pressure on the regime, still reeling from losing its most prominent uh, military commander and their own incompetence in shooting down a Ukrainian airliner during their response. The Quds Force today, while possessing the same capabilities it always has, is not the same Quds Force as under the leadership of Qasem Soleimani. The new leader, Esmail Khani, despite being Soleimani's deputy for many years, will not immediately and may never carry the same gravitas and throw, rate, throw weight as his predecessor. I think it can also be argued that the Quds Force itself, as an institution, may exercise more introspection on their part as well and this may be an opportunity for us. We should expect that Iranian proxies, however, will not likely de-escalate and may, for the most part, test their independence from Iran. We can especially expect to see this in Lebanon, Yemen, and Iraq. The maritime environment will continue to be an area where Iran will continue to exercise considerable layered capabilities, coastal defense systems, fast boats, mines, and other soft-like capabilities. And it appears by all accounts that Iran is steadily moving forward to restore components of its nuclear weapons program that may have been delayed under the JCPOA. We should expect that missile capability will continue its long-term trend of qualitative and quantitative improvement in Iran. Finally, I think it's important to note that the Arab Gulf states have come to understand that in a conflict between Iran and the United States, they stand to lose the most and are not eager, in my view, to see this escalate beyond the stages that it has recently, and would likely prefer, prefer to see an overall trend of de-escalation. A third threat, of course, is terrorism. And the back to the future is a phrase that comes to mind here. Jihad is going local, exploding local seams, using local fighters, impacting local populations, and creating local successes. ISIS will continue to exploit seams where it can, in and out of the region, the Sahel is a particularly vulnerable location. Al-Qaeda will continue to, will attempt to use the instability of the region to reconstitute its, its external plotting capability. A fourth threat is a festering instability. The long-standing underlying tensions of the region, 
corruption, poor governance, disenfranchisement, economic disparity, <clears throat> and toxic sectarian narratives, among others, are ever-present. Iraq remains in a difficult position. While there is not yet a national push for a U.S. departure, the protests continue under a new prime minister and a weak government. Some have surmised that it may be difficult for the Kurds and Sunnis to block a concerted Shia push for U.S. departure. In this political sphere, Iran will likely remain patient as we have at least temporarily replaced them as the principal point of contention on the Iraqi street. Syria is also at a difficult juncture, and there should be significant concern about whether the regime could control an ISIS resurgence. While the conflict and tension in the northeast part of the country seems to have subsided and perhaps even stabilized to some degree, the outlook in other areas is not good. Idlib is a significant disaster. In the last six months, somewhere between 400,000 and 800,000 persons were displaced. More than 1,200 have been killed, and only a relatively small percentage of the de-escalation area recaptured. Progress is extraordinarily slow and bloody. And there is now an open conflict between Turkey and Syria in this area, with Russia playing the supposed referee. Al-Qaeda-linked Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, or HTS, continues to gain power and influence and appears to be growing into a Syrian version of the Taliban. And Al-Qaeda grows more dangerous by the day. Attacks against regime forces in southern Syria have returned to 2011 levels. And in this vacuum, Hezbollah is increasing their recruiting, and ISIS will likely take advantage of the situation to grow their capabilities, membership, and influence. This poses serious concerns about spillover into Jordan and along the Israeli border. And we are all aware that the situation in Lebanon is not good either and will likely continue to get worse before it gets better. In this turmoil, we should expect that Hezbollah will take advantage of the situation to consolidate their position. And while currently unaffected, the Lebanese armed forces stands to lose as instability continues. A fifth aspect impacting our approach to the region are other unresolved regional conflicts. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is attempting to resolve the self-created situation in Yemen and is now at least focused on rebuilding regional cooperation impacted by the nearly three-year-old fallout with Qatar. Neither of these will be resolved quickly, but they must be resolved. We are on the precipice of an initial agreement in Afghanistan that could lead to further agreements on U.S. presence and more importantly, intra-Afghan discussions aimed at ending the conflict. Finally, we have to consider the view here at home. It matters. We are less dependent on the resources of the region. The United States is now uh, one of the larger exporters of the resources upon which we depended on from this region. There is fatigue on the home front brought about by lengthy engagements across the region that have expended significant American treasure and highlighted the intractable problems of the region that oftentimes seem unsolvable. It would be a mistake for our friends in the region to underestimate how powerful this fatigue is, not only on our policymakers, but in fact, on the broader American public. And as mentioned earlier, there is now a strategic imperative to maintain our competitive advantage against a revanchist Russia and a rising China. As many of you are aware, the U.S. national defense strategy makes it very clear that maintaining our competitive advantage against these states in particular is our overriding objective. Recent guidance from the Secretary of Defense, as recent as the last couple of weeks to our 
service chiefs and our combatant commanders makes this clear with a definite push towards irreversible momentum towards great power competition. So where does this leave us strategically? In my view, all of the interests I highlighted earlier remain relevant to one degree or another. Maintaining a favorable balance of power, however, remains highly relevant to our current national defense strategy of maintaining competitive advantage against great power competitors. Said more simply, we need to compete in this region. If we don't, our great power competitors undoubtedly will do so, filling in the voids and replacing our influence and using that influence to support their broader strategic objectives. From a military standpoint, we will need several categories of force to pursue our objectives. We will need a security cooperation component that works with our partners to develop their capabilities and assure integration among themselves and with us. This should ultimately be our military main effort. We will need rotational ground, air, maritime, and special operations forces to demonstrate resolve, exercise with our partners, protect vital U.S. assets, and ensure sufficient access and basing to meet contingency requirements. We will need a level of sustained CT presence in the region to carefully watch and understand the evolving threat, train partner CT forces, and where necessary, address threats beyond the capabilities of our partners. And we will require response forces based outside the region that can deploy and respond to emergency and contingency operations. The mixture of these forces must be determined through careful staff work, but I do believe there is a sustainable and affordable level of military presence that we can achieve in the region to protect our interests and directly contribute to maintaining our competitive advantage. More importantly, however, is not just what we do, but in fact how we do it. Building and sustaining relationships is absolutely critical to this approach. Looking at Iraq, our critical military task right now, in my view, is to return our relationship to where it was during the height of the ISIS campaign, that of a strong, largely behind-the-scenes partner focused on specific and mutually agreed military tasks. This can best be done by returning to what has worked for us in the last several years, a laser focus on defeat of ISIS activities, clear and direct communications uh, to our Iraqi interlocutors, affirmation of our expectations that Iraq protects the United States and coalition forces pursuing these agreed-upon missions, and continued respect for Iraqi sovereignty. Secondly, we need to normalize our operating methodologies in the region. In other words, we need to ensure we have measures in place to reduce miscalculation. Let me use Syria as a brief example. Despite a highly complex and, and crowded operating environment during the campaign against ISIS, we were able to achieve our military objectives largely because we normalized how and where we were conducting operations and backed it up with, a, albeit an imperfect, but an adequate mechanism to communicate with the Russians. I am absolutely 100% convinced that this not only saved lives, but prevented further escalation. The news, the media has recently carried uh, stories of tensions between U.S. forces and Syrian and Russian forces in the northeast part of the country. Making sure expectations are clear and having the ability to communicate directly are incredibly important mechanisms to maintaining influence and preserving interests. And I would suggest that in the future, this must eventually include Iran. Finally, we should understand the significance and the advantage of small but highly focused and impactful programs to directly help our partners. A good friend of mine, uh, a 
foreign officer and international officer, once told me that one of the best ways for us to help Israel was to double down on our relationship with the Lebanese Armed Forces. I still believe this to be the case. And over the last 12 years of engagement, they, the Lebanese Armed Forces, have increased their capability, become more independent and professional, and become, have become a more respected institution in Lebanon. This was accomplished through a very small presence on the ground, in many cases less than 50 troops, very modest and targeted foreign military sales programs, and strong support from our country team, despite concerns in the administration and Congress about Hezbollah influence. There's a long way to go with the Lebanese Armed Forces, but this is a very clear area where we should continue to compete. Small focused programs work. They keep our footprint small, our mission well-defined, and they are sustainable and affordable, and they are overwhelmingly popular with our partners in the region. Let me close by returning briefly to my main point. We have to compete in this region. This is how we maintain the competitive advantage that our security and defense strategies call for. I think it's a strategic imperative for us to do so. And I think Franklin Delano Roosevelt saw this 75 years ago. I assess we have enduring interests in the region and will well into the future. I also acknowledge that these interests, for the most part, will not likely eclipse the interests we have expressed in other areas. Maintaining our competitive advantage against China is an existential requirement for the United States and for many of our partners around the world. I do believe maintaining a balance of power that is favorable to the United States is a good approach to this region, and it supports our overall uh, approach of prevailing against great power competitors. It does not mean that we need to be endlessly and substantially engaged militarily. It means the following. We need to have a sustainable presence over time that is predictable for our forces and our partners in the region. And it demonstrates our intent to protect our important interests and is affordable and understandable by our citizens. And secondly, we need to exercise patience. None of this will be accomplished quickly. We have to wind down ongoing conflicts, adjust our posture, and communicate our strategy and approach to our partners in and out of the region. Admittedly, my time this, today is probably too short to do proper justice to this topic, one that grows more complex by the day. But I hope I've offered you some food for thought from a former U.S. military commander who spent a lot of time operating and thinking about this region. I don't expect that everyone here will agree with my assessment or my specific suggestions, but I do strongly believe that we have to compete in this region to continue to preserve our important national interests and support our vital national uh, strategy of competitive advantage. Thanks for your attention. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. That's, uh, that's a lot to chew on. I think one of, the, one of the interesting problems we have is the president's been very vocal that in his view, we've wasted three tr uh, $8 trillion in the Middle East. Even the Obama administration wanted to rebalance uh, its efforts away from the Middle East and toward Asia. Um, and you're talking about competing effectively when we're essentially, in the view of two administrations, going to reduce our presence while the Chinese and Russians, even if they do small things, are increasing their presence. Are there ways that we can compete effectively 
while that balance is going on, that in absolute terms, we will go down, in absolute terms, they will go up, even if in relative terms, we remain the preponderant power, the sense is we're in some ways on the way out and they're on the way in. How should, how should we think yeah, I, about I, that? I, um, I think it's a great question and I think it's a real challenge for, uh, um, for our people that operate in the region. I think we have to stop talking about uh, about what we're going to do in this region and what we're going to do in that region. I think we have to, we have to express, we have to express our strategy in a much more wholesome manner, in a much more fulsome manner, I should say. I, you know, the, the strategy is about is about maintaining our competitive advantage against great power competitors, and uh, and we have to recognize that that means that we have to compete in the regions where our where our where our great power competitors are located, but it also means we have to look at the other regions where we also, uh, they also can compete. My, my point here today is that, is that the, the Middle East, the Gulf, is an area where, where great powers are going to compete. They have, we have, we have always, that's always been the case, and it will probably always be the case going forward. And so we have to figure out a, a level of, of um, a, a way to, to compete there, and I've offered a couple thoughts in terms of how you might do that militarily. But uh, I, I think when we say things like we're pivoting here, or um, we articulate uh, our strategy only in terms of, uh, of, uh, of one particular geographic area, I think we sell short the role that, uh, that uh, competition in other areas plays. And so I think what we have to do is we have to paint a picture that competing um, has to take place on a global scale and not, not just in particular regions. And I think a lot of our strategic communications works against us in terms of that. But, but one of the challenges is, is in some ways we're trying to cover the waterfront where we compete while our competitors are very selective. The Chinese are very assiduously not trying to replicate what we do. They're trying to pick targets, both in terms of countries and in terms of activities in countries. Uh, as John McLaughlin and Christine Wormuth talked about earlier today, they're, they're uh, careful not to be drawn in to the Middle East militarily. In some ways, if we're trying to do, meet the Chinese and then some, for example, in the Middle East and in Africa and in Latin America, and we see the Chinese making inroads into Europe, which keeps the EU from making consensus decisions the way they we might want them to. I, I wonder if it all sort of becomes a little bit Sisyphean to do everything we think is important and to combat everything we see them doing in order to compete. I mean, wh what can we afford not to do? Well, I think first of all, you know, I think one of the key things we have to do is we have to unwind ourselves from ongoing conflicts. I mean, I think the efforts in, 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 uh, towards trying to create some kind of um, you know, political agreement uh, in, in Afghanistan is a good way to begin to draw down our, our presence there. I, I recognize that that is, like many things in this region, is an imperfect approach uh, to what we're doing. It's not going to satisfy everybody, but it doesn't get better if we don't try to move forward on this. And so I think the first thing we do have to do is we have to, we have to begin to extricate ourselves from, uh, from these ongoing conflicts. Um, the, the situation in Iraq and Syria here is you know, there was an opportunity, I think, uh, um, uh, for us to begin to draw down forces there and get them to a more sustainable level. I think, still think we should. The numbers there are not, comparatively, are not 
all is, is not that high, uh, frankly, but it probably could be could be lowered there, and that may be a way to, to do that as, as well. Um, I, I think our focus needs to be, again, and we can't be everywhere, but I do think that our focus needs to be much more heavily into the security cooperation uh, area with a lot of our partners. This is, they, we have- It's the by, with, and through. Well, to some extent it's by, with, and through, but it's also about having capable, well-connected security cooperation offices around the region uh, that work with our leading partners to develop their capabilities uh, and to make sure that they're integrated with each other. Um, I think one of the big challenges we have in, uh, in, uh, in the Gulf states is the integration of our missile defense capabilities. We have a, there's a lot there, there's a lot that the United States brings, there's a lot that our partners bring, but it's not effectively integrated, um, either with us or among themselves. This moving forward in that, and that's a difficult thing, and we've begun the process of trying to do that, and I, and I suspect my, my, my successor is, is continuing to move in that direction, uh, but that's, I think, how you begin to reduce the, reliance, the physical reliance on our forces and take on more of the burden themselves. And I think we have to look for opportunities to do that. The, the special operations capabilities that we've developed, I think, is a good example. As you look across the region, there are a number of special operations forces with a number of partners that are very capable, very capable of handling the situations in their own country and, and doing it in a manner that uh, reflects, you know, adheres to the law of armed conflict and other things. Not, not universally uh, yet, but uh, for the most part, there are a number. That's an example where in these inve the longer-term investments in these things, uh, I think, can yield capabilities where people can take care of their own problems with, with, a, with a level of support from us that is sustainable and doesn't require a huge presence on the ground. Are there security tasks that we should try to get other countries, either from in the region or outside the region, to take on? Are there red lines that we absolutely should not try to have, or should, should have prevent other countries from taking on? <laughs> well, I, 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 I mean, we talked about one of them. One of them is, uh, you know, is combating terrorists and terrorist organizations. I think we've made a significant investment. I think looking at the, at the maritime environment, particularly in the Gulf, is an area where we should be putting more uh, focus on our, on our partners and developing their capabilities to take on the lead for this. This is an area, frankly, where we don't have to we don't have to be the lead in the, in the combined task force. We, others can do this. Other Western powers can do it. Uh, and eventually, probably people in the region could, uh, can, can, can Should we encourage the Russians and the Chinese to get involved, or should we insist they stay out? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, we've seen some instances where the Chinese have stepped up. I mean, some of the counter-piracy efforts uh, that took place um, several years ago, they stepped up and provided some assistance uh, in that particular area. There may be, uh, there may be some, I think, I think when we can figure out a way to, uh, to try to cooperate on common things, I think we probably, probably should. We never really achieved that in a place like Syria. We were prohibited by our own laws from collaborating, cooperating, coordinating with them, and the most we could do was deconfliction. But deconfliction being the, you know, kind of the lowest level of, of things that we can do, we, we, sh we should certainly try to do that. Um, the Wall Street Journal had a story this morning about uh, the Russians using essentially mercenaries to advance Russian foreign policy. We're often fighting actors that use asymmetrical tools and we're keeping within 
the boundaries of U.S. law, within, often within conventional warfare. You've come out of the special operations community. You've done some pretty creative things. Are we too hidebound as we look at this series of challenges? Do we need to be even more creative, even more outside the box? What are some directions you think we need to think about that we're not to deal with a very complex threat environment? Well, you know, I, I think the idea of, um, you know, of contracted uh, security uh, organizations out there, I mean, that's certainly something we've looked at in the past. Um, I, I, my, my personal view is I, I'm, I, I don't think we've kind of come, um, come to a conclusion on how we actually manage the command and control over those type of activities and where they start and where they end and where policy, policy and our objectives fits into that. So I'm, I'm not yet completely comfortable with, uh, with, uh, with taking that approach. I do think that contractors uh, can, help, can help offset uh, uh, physical presence of military forces and certainly doing some of the training, uh, some of the supervising, establishing some of the more institutional aspects of, uh, of helping our partners develop their, their own capabilities. So I think those are, those are things we, uh, we ought to look at. I also think we have to look at leveraging the capabilities of some of our very best partners. You know, the 79-member the coalition that we assembled to uh, defeat ISIS and contained a lot of small contingents and a lot of small but very capable contingents. And, uh, and I think we have to look for ways that we uh, that we that we leverage that we leverage them better. The other thing I think we have to look at is we have to look at leaders in the region and how they can bring others along. I look at a country like the Emirates, for example, and I look at their special operations capabilities there. They're I think very well developed. They do function as a leader. They can bring others along with them. I think we have to have to I think we have to look at how our how our strategy and plans incorporates that into this. Um, we have about ten more minutes, and I want to open this up to the audience. Barbara, is another question about Iran? Okay, Barbara has a question about Iran right there. Do you have microphones? The microphone is coming. There it is, thank you. Thanks so much, Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council General Votel, always a pleasure to see you. Uh, you use the, the verb compete, not contain. So I want to push on that in terms of how the U.S. should deal with Iran's influence. It seems when we try to contain Iran, it just becomes more influential. So what advice would you give to U.S. policymakers about how to compete rather than contain Iran? Well, um, yeah, I, again, I, I, I'm not sure I'm excluding the idea of containing, containing Iran's activities here. I, when I talk about competing, I'm really talking about our interaction with uh, great powers. I, I, I recognize that certainly Iran is a, is a regional power and has a historical and cultural role in the region uh, that, 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 that it must play, um, uh, it must be responsive to. Um, but I, I do think, uh, I do think, I don't think that necessarily means we don't, uh, we don't try to contain them. I think one of the things we have to do is we have to be very, we have to be very clear in terms of what our objectives are. Uh, and, uh, and what our expectations are in the region. I, I think my, my personal view is, as I look back over the last you know, 18 months of activities in the region, certainly during my time in service and, and since, and, and it seems to me there has been a constant, uh, a constant struggle back and forth between the United States and Iran uh, to understand what, the, you know, what, what each, 
each player wants out of this and where we're going with this. And I do think it is extraordinarily important that we try to clarify this uh, in practical terms uh, as soon as we can. I, I think uh, in, many, in many cases we are, talking, we are talking past each other on this and uh, taking the hardened positions on this. While I do recognize that in some cases we have to do that, um, uh, the lack of flexibility in some of that I think is, 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 is it, it, it impacts us. One of the things I was almost always concerned about as a CENTCOM commander was an, was an interaction in the Gulf, a miscalculation in the maritime environment. Um, and uh, I, I do think one of the, and I, and I was never sure if that would be, I, didn't, I was almost certain it would not ever be caused by our forces, uh, but I wasn't as certain on the other side. And I never understood if that would be the actions of a rogue commander, if it would be the actions of an orchestrated um, Iranian strategy, if you will. And so I, I was very keen to try to look at ways that we could establish a communications channel with them. I am heavily influenced by my, by my, uh, by my, my experience in Syria. And I can't overemphasize to you how important that channel was to us. It wasn't actually anything I orchestrated myself. It was actually done above and below me. Uh, but I was had the, had the ability to, to be a big player in the channel with the Iranians. Yeah, no, the channel with the Russians. The Russians. And I'm using that as an example of why this is so important that we have a, a communication channel to, to to do this. I mean, a key way. And this is a a point I tried to make in my remarks here. A key way to reduce. Um, uh, reduce our presence and other things in here is to establish a norm of, of activities in the region, a very, very clear articulation of things that we are after and clear mechanisms that are in place to communicate uh, about this. And I think we have to press for those types of things. Well, I, I don't know. You know maybe, I, I don't know. Um, maybe there is a, maybe there is uh, I think one thing's for sure on the assassination. I think the, under, I think the Iranians are now very clear on where our red lines are uh, and what, what, what we're willing to tolerate and what we're willing not to tolerate. Um, again, I think there's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an observer to this. I'm not in, in the process and in the discussions right now, but I, I don't necessarily exclude that that situation makes it prohibitive for us to try to figure out a channel to, to communicate um, to to the Iranians, and I and I think I just I believe it is an absolutely imperative that we have some reliable mechanism uh, that we talk to our adversaries over, and I, I think it's I think it's critical for for controlling the situation, uh, for preventing miscalculations, and and perhaps for creating a platform upon which other things can can ultimately be established. But on that, on that issue of red lines, I mean, there's a school of thought that says we should have very clear and bold red lines so there are no misunderstandings. There's a school of thought that says that acting in unpredictable and disproportionate ways in response to uh, what are clear violations, but acting unpredictably and disproportionately is a way to deter your adversaries. Do you come down one way or the other on that? Yeah, I, I, am, I, am, I am more for Clarifying expectations and being clear uh, in terms, particularly you know, at a, at a tactical or operational level, being very, very clear on things that we will and will not tolerate uh, in the region and where things, uh, where things, uh, uh, where things will trigger a reaction for us. I just, I just, in my view, and my, and again, I'm very heavily influenced by my own experience. I, I just think this was a better approach to us, and it allowed us to have 
more, uh, more control over a situation that was ultimately not all that controllable. Uh, and I think being clear with things is very, very important. Is, again, as, as we tried to be with, uh, with the Iranians, with Shia militia groups, uh, with the Russians in Syria. You know, down, look at the little enclave down the southern part of the country around uh, Atanf. I mean, very clearly articulating what our, what, where, our, where our presence went and the extent of it was an important, was a very important measure for us to protect ourselves uh, and to communicate very clearly to others in there uh, what would trigger a, a reaction from us. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Right there, yeah. General uh, Jim LaRocco, uh, adjunct professor at, uh, at NISA NDU. Uh, I know from your own work how hard you worked to bring together country teams and to work with them. Uh, your predecessors did that, your successor is doing it now. You talked about competitive advantage, which I think for many of us is a bit of a fuzzy concept, but how do you see the role of diplomacy in keeping our competitive edge? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's absolutely essential to this. I mean, I, you know, I, I, think, I think it's always important. I didn't necessarily do it in these remarks today, but I do it oftentimes is remind audiences that I speak with that in uh, many regards, the military instrument of power is almost always a supporting element to the diplomatic aspect. And I think we have to, we have to, recog we have to recognize that. I think the, uh, on, the, you know, on, the, on the diplomatic front, the idea of, of, uh, of you know, public information that supports this, of being very uh, clear and demonstrating unity uh, across all instruments of, uh, of, uh, you know, of U.S. power, I think is, is absolutely critical. And I think it always starts with our diplomatic uh, partners, um, whether they're ambassadors or whether it's uh, coming out of the Department of State. And so uh, you know, I think it's absolutely essential. I, I um, you know, as, as we confronted ISIS and as we look at uh, confronting now great power competition, I, I think we are missing a, a great component here in the information aspect of this. And it's not an information aspect that the military is going to be a particularly effective at, but it is a, an, an information aspect I think the Department of State can be very effective at. I, I think we ought to have a, a United States information agency-like capability here that is orchestrating our ideas and information out there in the environment. I mean, I've done a fair amount of reading on this, and I do recognize that the height of the Cold War, we had that capability, and we could respond very agilely, almost on a daily basis, to things that were happening in the environment, to 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 to, um, to put truthful information out there, and to address. Um, you know, misinformation that was, that was coming out. I think this is an extraordinarily important aspect. I think ensuring that uh, in countries you know, around this region, and perhaps much broadly, having confirmed ambassadors sends a very clear message to our, to our partners. When I left CENTCOM last uh, March, uh, 20 countries, 18 have diplomatic relations, seven of them had confirmed ambassadors. Uh, all of them, the ambassadors, Charges, to a person, were excellent, excellent, dedicated uh, Americans doing the very best for their country. But, they, but a Charges does not, does not unfortunately carry the same weight as an ambassador. 
Uh, and I think this puts an unfair burden on them and it puts an unfair burden on the military, uh, frankly. And we need to make sure that that's in place. And we need to make sure that our back offices in the Department of State and others are manned with professionals, uh, diplomatic professionals, to, to provide that. Uh, um, you know, I, I wish I could come up with a really catchy slogan like uh, Jim Mattis did here. Well, if you're not going to fund them, give me more money for bullets kind of thing. I, I can't, but the sentiment is exactly the same. Um, it, we're, we're, we're swinging with one arm tied behind our back if we don't fully engage our, our full diplomatic capabilities in this. And, and in many, many ways, this is a, this is a competition for ideas, uh, frankly. Uh, and uh, and uh, I, I'm here to tell you, I'm not, I'm not sure that the military is in the position to, to play the leading role in that, or should be playing the leading role. Somebody else has to be, and I think it has to come back on our um, much more on our diplomatic side than, than perhaps some others. So I'm not sure if we should take uh, uh, solace from the fact that our Secretary of State is a, a fellow West Pointer like you. So we have at least somebody with a West Point background trying to, <clears throat> to resurrect the State Department. Uh, they talk about swagger, but I think I agree with you that uh, there seems to be a disproportion and a sense of who's supporting who has been... Uh, I mean, I think we have, to, we have to understand the realities of the region. The realities of this region we're talking about today is that there, you know, the military does carry an outsized impact with a lot of our partners. Uh, I've recognized that um, as I traveled around the region, and I think uh, we always tried to use influence and access that we got just by being uh, military, uh, you know, military uh, leaders to help, help, uh, help help diplomats help others as as well so i think we have to we have to we have to recognize that but i think it's, it's your predecessor general zinni used to talk about he used to have a private jet he used to take the assistant exactly. secretary used to take the diplomats along with him yeah. because he had so much more ability to show up with fanfare than the diplomats did i mean this is not a well, there's a, it's lot, not a, new challenge there's in the a region. lot that comes with resources and i think we have to look at how we how we leverage those to to help the the bigger team. I don't want to be all uh, mom and apple pie here, but it really is about that uh, team approach in terms of this and, uh, and getting behind our getting behind our diplomats and using our resources to the very best of our capabilities. Excellent. Um, Jerome Votel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.